Well, good evening, everyone. Today is Monday, March 20, Monday, March 27th, 2023. And this is another episode of Lots to Talk About. And tonight we're talking stoicism for dummies. And uh, man, who else? Who knows what else? Uh, we were just chatting before the show. And um, yeah, we'll see where it goes. It could go multiple different directions. But my guest today is an accidental philosopher and host of the Stoic Coffee the Stoic Coffee Break, a weekly podcast about how to apply Stoic principles in your life. He writes music. He's a big fan of crypto and blockchain technology and wants to help people figure out their own happiness in a com- in a complex world. So he sounds like he'd fit in pretty well here um, on this show. So I would like to welcome to Lots to Talk About, Eric Cloward. How are you doing, Eric? Mm, doing pretty well. So I finally actually finally slept a little over eight hours last night, which is an unusual thing for me lately. So, yeah, uh, insomnia or um, or just busy and don't have time to sleep. uh, Just insomnia. The last three months, uh, I was averaging about four to five hours a night, regardless of when I went to bed, what drugs I took. Just yeah, I it it used to be that. Well, I used to have it like, you know, maybe a few times a month, it would just hit. And then for whatever reason, a while back, um, just I wake up at 4.30, 5 o'clock, and my body just goes, hey, brain awake. And, you know, like, okay, then I try and sleep for an hour or two, and it doesn't work. Then I get up and start my day. And then usually by the time, you know, I hit about 4 or 5 in the afternoon, I'm just like dragging and then kind of... <laughs> figure out the best way to get through the rest of the day and then repeat the cycle. And so last night was kind of a nice break from it. Nice. Yeah. My wife, my wife is one of those that is like, I have to be to bed by eight 30 because I have to be up by five 30. I need my eight hours. That's it. I can't function without it. I'm like, okay, good night. And I'll waver and lay in bed and dick on my phone and do this and that and fall asleep at like 11. And she's waking me up at five 15 and I'm like, okay, time to get up and go. She's like, how do you do it? I'm like, I don't know. It just, it just is what it is. But anyway, um, I'm glad you're rested. Uh, introduce yourself to my audience. Uh, who is Eric? Uh, kind of, who are you? Where, how, who's Eric? I, I kind of introduced you a little bit. Um, but, uh, who are you? What do you do, man? Um, yeah. So my name is Eric Cloward. I'm originally from, I guess Salt Lake would probably be the closest thing to my home base. Uh, grew up there for the most part with time in Virginia Obviously, Minnesota, like we were discussing before, I lived there before I moved into Portland. Um, I used to be Mormon, went on a mission to Austria, and so I spent two years there and had a wonderful time. And since that time, you know, left the church. Uh, 2004, I moved to Portland from Minnesota, and I know I'm kind of jumping around there, but was living in Minnesota for a while, moved to Portland, you know, had two kids at the time, got divorced, still have two kids, um, and now they're out on their own, which is kind of a strange feeling. Um, so my youngest graduated from high school last year and is going to college and then will be going to college down in Bend next year. That's his goal anyway. And so then my oldest is 
moved out to roommates and living on their own. And, and so for me, it's, yeah, I'm kind of an empty nester. Yeah. That's why, so it's that's kind why of, you have the, that's why you have the insomnia, man. <laughs> well, there's a lot going on right now. So I am, I'm working on selling my house. Um, so I think the construction guys are gone. Otherwise you're going to hear some grinding in the back as they're working on it. It's, it's a big house and there are four decks on it and a walkway to get to the backyard. Um, and they've been working on those for the past few months and cause they're attached to the house and they have to be repaired if I want to sell this house. Um, so it's been a lot of, a lot of trying to get everything ready for that. Um, and then after that I will be moving to Europe. So moving to Europe. My house, so, oh, wow. Yeah. Going on the road. Are you, are you going and traveling? Do you have specific plans there or are you just kind of winging it? Um, I'm so far I'm planning on uh, looking at landing in Spain. So they just opened up a digital nomad visa, which looks really good. Um, I work in it, I'm a software developer by trade and that they have one of the better ones. Uh, them and Portugal are, are probably two of the better digital nomad visas. And I pretty much check most of the boxes. So that's kind of what I'm, what I'm shooting for. And yeah, so it should be pretty exciting, but I'm reaching, uh, Reaching that point, like I said, where I'm still in good health. So I, I turned 50 last year. I'll be 51 this next month. And, you know, the kids are pretty independent. I'm single. Unfortunately, my uh, my long-term relationship you know, kind of fell apart over the last year and a half. And so, yeah. So it's just one of those things of like minimizing everything. I've just been selling things like crazy you know been posting everything i can on ebay and facebook that i have to get rid of tons of audio equipment so and so if you're if you're in the portland area and you're looking for audio equipment uh get a hold of you um actually i pretty much sold most of it i have a few things left but most of the uh most of the good stuff is gone um and yeah i do have two guitars i'm trying to sell so they're they're great one is a classical one is a, a nice steel string so they're we, fantastic. Guitars, we so. we downsized. We downsized from a thirty-five acre homestead with uh, I think it was four outbuildings to a thirty-two foot travel trailer and an F two fifty. I know. Um, I feel your pain. <laughs> Definitely <laughs> feel your pain. <laughs> yeah. This my goal is to basically get down to everything that I would need to fit in. You know, two suitcases and a backpack, and not like a big rucksack, but just you know. Uh, yep. uh, a backpack that I could take, you know, my computer and just some basic stuff in and, you know, fly over there and, and start from there. And so figure I, it I out. Just need to, yeah, just figure it out when I get there, you know, just, I got, a, again. I got a contact that I, I, um, I made through an interview actually, that, uh, is a minimalist and he is trying to enter the extreme minimalism, um, owning less than 100 things. Uh, is his goal. So yeah. definitely doable in a backpack and a couple suitcases if you own less than a hundred things. And I was like, ah. <laughs> you know, I was worried when we were downsizing all our stuff and getting real, rid of all our shit and, and packing the truck as full as we could and packing the trailer as full as we could trying to stay underweight and all that stuff. I was like, I'm going to, I, I don't have enough stuff. I don't have enough stuff. Um, and we got on the road for a couple of months and all of a sudden I was like, I don't need this shit. And we just, we landed at a spot for the winter and we had a dumpster there. It was a hip camp that, um, they had dumpsters there just for all the campers. Cause there was a ton of campsites. And, um, 
I was like, hey, can I throw some stuff in your dumpster? And we just started like getting rid of more shit. <laughs> We're like, we don't need all yeah. of this stuff. What is going on? And it's just this weird feeling. You flip a switch and you're like, that's really not what matters. Um, as long as I can figure out how to get the stuff I need, if I need it, uh, I don't really yeah. need to haul it around with me. Yeah. And that's kind of my goal over there is that the plan is to only buy the stuff when I need it and be like, okay, you know, I've got an apartment. Okay. Now I need to furnish that and get some basics for things like that. And so that's been my, my kind of thinking is like, I mean, honestly, the only things that I'm going to be taking are, you know, my computer, some clothes that I want because I'm very particular about what clothes I like. And I'll obviously buy more there and so on. But I have, I really, I'm really dig wool. I, I, smart wool and those type of things are just i found i i bought a smart wool top um about five six years ago even longer than that but um i was downtown portland going to a meeting and it was spring and it was and suddenly it this cold front moved in dropped temperature like 10 15 degrees and i was wearing shorts and a t-shirt and i was like oh my gosh i gotta go to this meeting i'm freezing do you even have a hat uh, so i went over to rei and on their clearance rack because it was spring was a smart wool base layer top at 250 uh weight and i was like i've heard great things about this fine i'll wear it and I, I i liked it it was just pure black and i put it on and was so comfortable and then like after that i was just like man this is one of the most comfortable things i've ever had it temperature it regulated my temperature so perfectly and then after that i was just like okay so pretty soon i would say probably about half my wardrobe is wool at least you know when it comes to tops shirts socks those type of things and so I have a whole bunch of that kind of stuff that I want to take with me because that's just fantastic. Yeah. yeah. You can see the comment on the Marina wall. This one I just picked up uh, from a company called Paca apparel. So P A K A apparel. And it's uh, it's a hoodie made with from Alpaca and it is absolutely delightful. I, I end up wearing it, you know, like weeks at a time because it's just so comfortable and perfectly regulates my temperature. And I'm just like, Okay, and I think from what I've read, Alpaca is a little bit better than Merino for some of those things. So uh, the only problem is that well, you're right. You're bit. right up there. You're up there in that um, that area. You need that stuff. Like yeah. it changes so fast, and with the humidity, um, that was made for your climate where you're at. And uh, yeah. I don't know where how Spain is. Is it uh, is it similar Spain at all? Is, no, no, it's fairly arid and fairly dry. Um, which will be interesting. But um, for me, I'm also ready for a change. I mean, I, you know, I grew up in Salt Lake, which is a very different climate than here. Uh, Minnesota was incredibly different than here. Austria was <laughs> yeah. very different than anywhere. I, I lived in Virginia for a few years when I was a kid. And that was that and Austria, are probably the two closest climates I could say that I've lived in. You know, it's fairly humid in both places. Um, the place where I lived in Austria, they got you know plenty of snow, but in the mountainous areas, they got lots of snow and the more plains areas less so but the winters were fairly long and they were cold like in virginia you know and some but uh but pretty doable and not, not nearly as cold as salt lake winters or minnesota winters which were just absolutely brutal um <laughs> I, I remember the thing after i said it though is what is it the rain in spain falls mostly in the plains is that yeah the... <laughs> yeah that's the thing the rain in spain falls mainly on the plain so yeah but uh but yeah, so mostly things like that. I have a, a big number of books that I do want to take as well because books can get expensive when you're ordering them and getting them shipped over and stuff like that. So probably just ship those slow boat and, uh, you know, have them show up at some point. Uh, take a few in a suitcase, but and then some audio gear for recording my podcast um, and 
you know, but otherwise, like I will be, you know, buying a new keyboard when I get over there because I sold my keyboard that I used to make music and stuff like that. Be buying some new monitors, and most some of that is also because of the differences in, in electrical things. So, uh, you know, it'd be silly right. for me to take my studio monitors over when I'm just, you know, have to get special plugs and it's like just buy new ones over there. So, yeah, what is that? Fifty? They run fifty hertz over there or something? Is this different? Um, is I, it think different? I think we're on one ten and they're on two twenty. Oh, they run 220. Yeah. I think they, I think, um, a lot of the motors run on different, um, different frequency too. Um, I, I used to, I worked in technician. I would like did gas station repair and stuff like that. And then the United States was like oddball for everything, of course, just like, you know, using standard measurements and everything else. And we're just different yeah. than every other place too on everything. So can't remember yeah. what it was, yeah. but it, there was always a European section, like when you were checking uh, windings and motors and things, and you had to have the, you needed to have the right motor to get the right uh, ohm readings and stuff. So shit like that yeah. just, just sticks in my head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and so i'm i'm looking forward to it i think it'll be uh it'll be interesting for sure um my spanish isn't great it's something i'm working on i did some when i was in college uh grammatically it reminds me a bit of german um and so that's that's helpful like some of the uh conjugations and i'm getting to that point with some of the apps that i've been practicing in that it's that I'm I'm picking up those things where you just kind of know it intuitively, like which which case this is, how to conjugate this thing, and and it just starts to flow into place. You don't have to go, wait, this word ends with this, so that means it's la versus l and, and other stuff like that. So, um, yeah. and after a while with German, I got to that point where somebody'd be like, well, what's the article for this? Is it dare to your das? And I'd just be like, I I could tell you what it is, but I couldn't tell you why it was. I just it just felt right, and so functional versus um, functional versus practical or uh, was it functional yeah. versus um the academics of it exactly so me and my brother were discussing this the other day that so when i was in austria i got to the point where i could actually speak the viennese dialect pretty well and they they thought the, the austrians thought that was pretty hilarious it'd be like some someone you know from from germany coming over here and going hey dude we're going to a surf and you want to hang some hang 10 with me you know it'd be like totally uh, awesome dude you know or talking like Polly shore kind of um and so, so you were Arnold Schwarzenegger in reverse. Yeah, pretty much. But it, <laughs> what I found was that if you if you learn the music of the language, rather than worrying about too much about you know the rules of the language, then you're going to get a lot further. And that's that's kind of how I I phrase it. Is I, I you know I, I really work to try and find the rhythm. I try to find the musicality within any language like that, and then. Um, and that, that's just kind of it. And my brother, he went to Japan on his mission. He basically did the same thing. So he'd be like, well, I know the book says this, but everybody's saying it like this. So I will work on just mimicking what they do. And then that seemed right. to work a lot faster. And so he got to the point where he was able to do it a lot faster than, you know, the other, the other missionaries who were trying to learn it by the book. So I think that's yeah, um, the the minimalist guy. So he's been traveling his whole life. That's probably that's why he ended up a minimalist. But his parents were diplomats. Yeah, okay. So he was in countries his whole life. Um, and I asked him how he learned all the languages because he spoke like 13 languages or something. I was like, this yeah. is insane. Uh, he's like, well, I really like soccer, football, wherever he was, depending on where he was. But he so he would start reading the local soccer in the newspaper and he'd just read an yeah. article. And he knew what it meant in every other language. So he would 
be able to figure it out. He's like just a little tiny article, a few lines, but that's you equating it to music being a musician makes perfect sense. You hear the rhythms in the language, you pick up on patterns and things like that because you're used to hearing that in the music. And he just was able yeah. to equate it to something he was passionate about. And yeah, yeah it's, I mean, it's how we learn a lot of things. I think um, when you really get into it, you equate it to something that you're passionate about. Yeah, very much so. I think, uh, I mean, one of the things that I do just, you know, is joking around all the time in my own head. I, I don't know if other people do this nearly as much as I do, but like I'll, I'll rewrite song lyrics in my head, you know, I'll change one word. You know, it's like we used to do this with, uh, you know, all kinds of song. We change a word to, you know, uh, I can't think of anything off the top of my head right now, but we change different words and songs and see how we can, you know, make up funny lyrics based upon if you change the title of the song. Oh, and, yeah. you know, just silly things like that. And so I will oftentimes do that. It's a similar thing like that where I'll just translate it into German in my head and see if I can make it so that actually rhymes or is somewhat poetic. But it's it's hard because I don't know a lot of the idiomatic phrases per se and a lot of the the lyrical poetic things. Um, so while it well, yes, it is a direct translation. It's not very poetic, but it's it's still fun to do. Yeah. Oh, I, I, that was thing, something that always fascinated me because I had a friend that was always into Japanese, um, like K pop, but it was like Japanese metal. Um, mm -hmm. and I would listen to the lyrics in Japanese and I'm like, okay, so what are they saying? Because it's rhyming in like in my head, but are they actually like making sense in their language because i hear music in english and the words rhyme in english well i'm hearing them sing and it sounds like it's flowing but i don't know what it actually means <laughs> yeah 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 and that's 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 kind of how i feel about you know the stuff i'm doing it's like yeah it, it works but it doesn't really but it's all good so <laughs> but i do it's pleasing yeah. to the ear that's the thing so yeah but, but i got pretty good at it so I also, you know, I, when I was in college, I was, a, you know, actually, I, I mean, I still am. I'm a singer. And uh, that was kind of my, I was musical theater major for a while. But I did have some opera in some of my private lessons and stuff like that. And so in doing so, some of the songs were in Spanish, some of them were in Italian, some of them were in German. The German ones obviously were easy for me to, to sing because I already speak that. Um, but I started picking up like the Italian accent and then, you know, being able to to sing in Italian with an Italian accent and then like listening to like Andrea Bocelli and, you know, Pastor Domingo and Pavarotti all singing in, in their respective languages. And, and so I just find that, that I do have a, a pretty decent ear for accents. And again, so that makes it easier. So I found that when I heard people speaking English, so I had like, for example, I had two Russian people that I worked with when I was living out in Minnesota. One of them uh, spoke pretty English pretty well, but a lot of it was because his pronunciation was good. So even if his grammar wasn't great, his pronunciation was good. So we could at least understand the words he was saying. And that went a long way. Whereas the other one, um, yeah, I guess her pronunciation was absolutely terrible. So half the time I couldn't understand the words that were actually coming out of her mouth. And so I was like, I sure I'd be willing to help you, but I have no idea what you're saying. And she knew what she was supposed to be saying. She just couldn't get it out of her mouth. Yeah. So it's just like, sometimes you just like, I don't understand what. Okay. Is yeah. It, you're pointing at this thing, but I have no idea adapt, what you mean. Is it easier to adapt to another language singing it? Um, it like I think of, uh, was it um, Hugh Laurie when he acted as house and he was able to um, read a script in without hit. Like when you hear him not acting 
and then you hear him acting it's like there's there's got to be something in the reading or he's just that unbelievably talented is it easier in a song or reading a script to be able to adapt that do you think i think uh, i think so i think that you can within a song or within you know playing a character you can kind of lose yourself in that character so it's more it it's it's kind of expected of you to take that chance so a lot of people when they're learning another language they won't they don't want to fail they don't want to make mistakes they don't want to sound bad so oftentimes they will be very slow or they will think in their language and then try and translate into the other language which that's one of the worst things you can do uh, the best thing you can do is try and think in that language while you're you know and when i speak in german i will actually do that i'll just start thinking in language and then I will find that if I've run into somebody and we end up chatting in German for a little bit, the rest of the day, I'm, my internal monologue is in is in German, and it's just kind of the you know kind what of language to run do you out. dream in? What language do you dream? I generally, in? I usually dream in English, but uh, when I when I've spoken for quite a while in German for the day or something like that, I will often dream in in German. When I was in Austria, I dreamed jumped in German all the time, and sometimes it was back and forth. You know, like somebody that's would be always, speaking that's English, always wondered, Those are the things I ponder. Like, um, do people that are deaf, do they hear in their dreams? Like if you lose your hearing, um, not necessarily like if you don't know what anything you hear, if you can't hear anything ever from the beginning, I don't know how you would dream with with audio. But like if you've lost your hearing or you lost your eyesight, do you dream what you used to know um and is that super mm. frustrating like these are the things i ponder yeah. and this is why i can't fall asleep till like 11 o'clock at night <laughs> yeah yeah i don't know yeah it's it's very possible um so so I, you have a podcast about stoicism and and mm-hmm. uh, i have i have dabbled in the topic i've i've been actually in a, a round table discussion about it and i really wasn't sure what was going on i was just kind of uh, part of the group um and i saw your profile and i would love to kind of get a overview i've i've looked into it uh in the meantime actually but from you how did you discover like first of all what is it um and then how did you discover this and and then we'll kind of go down and kind of explain a little bit if you want to just give a brief um what is stoicism and how did eric get into this stuff sure um for me stoicism is i guess just not for me but stoicism is a philosophy that comes from ancient greece um and then moved over to Rome over time. So basically, it was originally started by Zeno of Citium. And Zeno was a merchant. He was on a trip, for, I think, uh, and I can't remember where he was coming from, but ended up being shipwrecked in Athens. And he was, you know, basically lost a fortune. And he was, I think, in his 20s at the time. Um, and while he was trying to, trying to figure out what to do next, he was hanging around Athens and he stopped by a bookstore. He was like, oh, well, since I'm here, I may as well read some. And started reading uh, memorabilia from Xenophon, who was a, a, a general, not a fantastic writer, but a pretty good writer. And he did a, uh, within his book, he talked about uh, Socrates or Socrates, depending on where you're from. And he was so taken, Zeno was so taken with this description of Socrates and the way that he used uh, questioning and thinking to 
expand his mind and to question reality and to try to understand things better that he you know he went to the bookseller and was like how do i meet somebody like this i want to learn how to think like this i want to be this kind of person and cleanthes who was a famous cynic just have me walking by the bookstore right at this moment and the bookseller was like well here here's cleanthes he's a cynic he's he's a philosopher and so zeno was just like glommed onto him is like i will be your student teach me everything you can i want to be like socrates this is you know this is what what happened this is why i i lost my ship this is why i landed here and then this is what i need to do with this and through using the tools that socrates taught that were you know handed down through plato and the dialogues so if you don't know much about socrates we have no written record of actually socrates never wrote anything Everything that we have about Socrates was from students, from other people, but mainly from Plato, who was one of his main students, who wrote these things called the dialogues, which were somewhat theatrical in a way in that they were, you know, like there's supposed to be dialogues between different people. Socrates being, you know, one of the main characters of this who would ask questions of people and they would they would interrogate a topic and. Some of it is, you know, would be somewhat contrived because obviously he's writing it like a play is contrived, if you will. But in doing so, would teach a method of how you could question things in such a way that you could kind of get to the root of things. And you're like, they have one on there. It's a dialogue about courage. And what, what is the definition of courage? And, you know, we all think we know what courage is, but, and then you watch Socrates' character tear it apart. And you're like, wow, I never huh, I never thought of courage in that way or, you know. And so in doing so, you know, uh, you know, studied under Cleanthes for quite some time, uh, you know, basically built back some of his fortune. And one of the things that he would do is in, uh, he would go out into this porch, it was called the Painted Porch, and it was out in one of the main squares, and he would start teaching philosophy. And that, which is actually where Stoicism comes from, because uh, polka stoia means painted porch. So stoia meaning Stoicism. So it's just, if you want to think about it, it's called porch philosophy is really what it's about. And so his thinking was this should be available to anybody who wants it. And so he would just go out there and talk about these ideas. And kind of the core ideas, um, it, to me, the most important aspect is that, and this is the opening of the Endocrine, which was written by Epictetus, who was also one of the main philosophers of Stoicism, who happened to be a slave. And he talks about there are things you can control and things you can't control. And the most important thing is that you understand the difference. And part of the reason for me, and this is kind of my own my own take on it, is I look at them as two sides of the same coin, is that on one side, you've got the things you can control, and on the other, you have the things you can't control. If you focus on the things you can control, you're taking responsibility, you're being effective, you are nobody's victim, and you actually get shit done. If you are focusing on the things you can't control, well, you're wasting energy. You, By not doing the things you can control, you become a victim because you could take some action, but you're not actually doing anything with it. And you know, you actually don't really get much done and you start to blame everybody else for why your life isn't good. So understanding what you can control is, is a very big thing. And for the most part, there are very, there's very little that we actually control in our lives. So the main things that we can control are our thinking, our choices and our actions. And that's pretty much it. 
So in, in short, you, if you want to put those things together, you could say our will is what we have control over. But we don't have control over our reputation. We don't even have control over our bodies. We have control of what we do with our bodies. But if I get cancer and it just happens, I got cancer. I don't want to have cancer. I can't control that. But I can control how I respond to that. Right, right, right. Yeah. So, oh, makes makes complete sense. That's so. That's kind of that's kind of your your go to principle out of the whole thing is the um, delineating between what you can control and what you can't, and really just needling down to that. Yeah, I think that's probably because that to me is like one of the main pillars of it. Because if you're actually going to get anything done in your life, you need to focus on what you can control and let go of everything else. Um, because if you are focused on everything that if you're, if you're sitting here, if you have a problem in your life and you're, you're trying to control the things that are outside of your control, then you're going to feel frustrated because you're not getting anything done. And you're just going to start blaming why this thing isn't working on everything else around you, the people around you and, you know, the situation around you, all of these things. So, you know, there's really, there's really not a lot. So for me, it's just, it's such a core thing. And what it does is it, it also returns a lot of things to your control. So because you are focusing on everything that you can control. And I kind of came up with an idea, a while, uh, not really a new idea, but it was an idea that I'd read a quote and um, it stuck with me for a couple of weeks. And I did a podcast episode on this about three or four weeks ago. And the, it, it kind of embodied this really well. And it was basically the, the quote was, there are no problems. There are only choices. And when I read that, they like, I was like, Whoa, wait a second. I got to There's, there's something to that. I got to, okay. I got to hold on to that. I immediately went over to my notebook and notepad and wrote that down. Cause I'm like, I don't want to forget that quote. And so when I worked on that episode, it was one of those where I, I felt like I did a decent job and I scratched the surface on it, but I feel like there's so much deeper onto that. And so my brain has kind of been percolating on that and marinating that idea um, because I think it's there's so much to that. And I think that for me, when I run into a situation, I run into a challenge in the past and I still do it now is I will have this almost like abstract image of it in my eye, in my mind's eye. And I attach all my worries and my stress to it. And, and after a while, it almost becomes this physical thing that I have to contend with. And I get stuck in worrying about what happened in the past. I get stuck about worrying what's going to happen in the future. And by getting rid of that and, and not saying that there aren't problems because there are, but the idea is that only uh, things are only a problem. One, if you, if you label them a problem, if you don't think anything is a problem and it's just something you have to deal with and you just go, okay, yeah, this is just something comes up but you don't make a big deal out of it. You handle it significantly better. And so for me, that idea of there are no problems, there are only choices. Um, it also comes from a quote that, you know, people are only uh, both from Epictetus and a similar one from Marcus Aurelius is like, it's not the thing or the event that distresses you, but your impression of it, your thoughts about it, the way that you think about something is what causes your stress. It's the story that you're telling yourself in your head about this thing that is stressing you out because the thing itself isn't causing stress. It's just a, it's a thing. It's an event. It's whatever, but it's your perception of it. And so, which is why two people can be in the exact same situation. One person can freak out and, you know, run around like a chicken with their head cut off. And the other person can look at it and go, huh, that's interesting. How do I want to work with this? 
and even worse even worse is not not just what you think your impressions of the situation but a lot of the times it's what you think other people's impressions are like yes. you you do something and it's like oh my god what are people gonna think yeah and that's uh, who so, cares <laughs> yeah and that's another big thing about stoicism is that you can't control your reputation what can you control you can control how you act and how, you know the choices you make you can't control other people so stop trying to do that. If they don't like you, they don't like you. You can't make them like you. You can't control their thinking around it. So stop trying to, so stop worrying about what other people think because you have absolutely no control over that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's Josh, right there. Josh says you didn't, I didn't offend you. You, you chose to be offended by my words. And yeah, yeah, that, that's been something that's kind of stuck with me. I, like I, I have understood everything you're saying um, as kind of a core belief and didn't know what it was called. Uh, and yeah. I, I've seen the transition in myself as I've, I've learned these topics. And it's probably because I associate with people that, that um, are do uh, go getters or uh, get shit done people um, yeah. that you, you need to employ this philosophy to be productive. Absolutely. And it's, it's hard. I mean, for me, for example, my background, you know, being Mormon, you are measured on completely external things. You have this whole list of here's the checklist of what you need to do to be a good person. If you do not follow this, you are a bad person. And there's all this external judgment on things. So letting go of that and, and, and what that does is it really makes you a victim because you feel like you're a horrible person because you failed to meet all of these external uh, expectations that were placed upon you. And, you know, some people, they thrive in that. I didn't. I always felt like there was something wrong with me because I'm like, I don't agree with that. or I don't feel like that. I, this doesn't make sense to me. And I just I but I try and try and try and I just failed miserably. And so finally I reached a point where I was just like, this isn't working for me. And, um, you know, I've been on and off with the church for a while. And then my ex-wife was, she's like, you know what? I'm done with this. This just doesn't work. I'm out. And it took me a bit longer to finally, you know, reach that point. But what happened was she gave me a book. It was called leaving the saints by Martha Beck. And her dad was the chief apologist for the church for about 50 years. You know, their, their PR flack who, you know, and she basically laid it out. She's a super smart woman, just laid it out in such a way where I'm just reading this book going, oh, my God, what? I didn't know about this. I didn't know the church did that. And I didn't understand. And wait a second. Joseph Smith did what? And it was just like, <laughs> this guy was a con man. And Brigham Young, too. Oh, my God. Brigham. Wow. OK, so that means that if he lied about all of these things. That means the whole thing. You must have been telling the truth about the rest. Don't worry, man. <laughs> I was just like, oh my God. And 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 what it came down to is there was what happened is they Joseph Smith claimed that he took these these golden plates that were given to him by an angel and translated them, and they were in Reformed Egyptian. So he claimed that he, through the power of God, could translate Reformed Egyptian. And years after he did the Book of Mormon, this traveling show was coming through and they had a bunch of egyptian papyri and mummies and stuff like that and they said oh joseph smith should be able to read this so the church bought it and joseph smith translated it into this thing called the pearl and they called it the pearl of great price and these things were all about abraham going down to egypt and all this stuff and it was just you know this whole wackadoodle story which had no real basis in history or even close to what was in the bible 
which the Bible has giant flaws in it, but there are, there are definite elements of truth within that and archaeological things where they've shown, hey, this is where things right. were, for example. Um, and so then what happened is that, you know, the church fell into some disarray for a while. They moved out to Utah and then they found the uh, scrolls again back in the 60s. And in the meantime, the Rosetta Stone had been found, which then they were able to actually translate Egyptian. And they're like, great. So they they found these scrolls and were like, yep, these are the ones that Joseph Smith translated. They sent them off to NYU and said, please translate these for us. And they were like super excited because they were going to show Joseph Smith, knew what he was doing. And they get the translations back and it was nothing even close to it. And they were like, but this isn't what was there. And they said, oh, yeah, this is this is actually very similar to thousands of other scrolls that we have that were basically their death scrolls. So they were they were buried with the dummies and or with the mummies, excuse me. And they was, you know, all bragging about all the achievements of whoever they were buried with. And I said, right. yeah, we have thousands that are very, very similar to this. In fact, to this drawing that you see here, that, you know, we have this in, in plenty of other scrolls that are very similar to that. The format is very, very similar. And basically they just copy paste it in a way, you know, like, because it was kind of the standard template of the time. And the church just kind of went, well, hmm, kind of swept it we under the rug, you know. <laughs> And so when I found out about this, I went, okay, so that meant that this whole thing is just a house. And that was like the house of cards where that last card pulled out and the whole thing's went. Whoosh. And I felt like the way I describe it to people is like, you know, those Easter Island statues. Imagine, you know, with the big long noses, imagine you were carrying one of those on your back and you suddenly like, you know, shrugged it off your shoulders and how physically light you would feel. I mean, I actually felt like I was lifting off the ground when I made that decision. I'm like, okay, I'm done. I, I kind of looked around like, am I actually floating or do I just feel that much physically lighter? It was an actual physical sensation. It was really a strange feeling. Um, so for me, I can't remember where I was going with all of that, but uh, I, I found that no, it's, it's, a, it's a great, uh, like I grew up near Palmyra, New York. And uh, okay. yeah, so I know, I know, <laughs> so you know. about pageant and uh, the whole thing. The pageant, yeah, yeah. So, so listening, listening to you talk about it, it, it's humorous. And I have a lot of um, LDS friends that, I, I mean, they're just totally, uh, you would never know it. And yeah. it, it, you talk to them about it. They're like, yeah, I just don't want to talk about it. <laughs> Like, okay, man. Yeah, and, cool. and so for me, you. but basically, yeah. And so living in this this culture, the where they had these external guidelines that you had to live by, you had to check all of these boxes, which is so constricting. And so when we were living out in Minnesota, we, you know, our conversation about where we wanted to move after that, uh, you know, when Utah came up, we were both just like, "So, what do you think about Salt Lake?" <laughs> nah, nah. Okay, good. That was our con that was the, literally the conversation. It didn't even need words. <laughs> yeah. And it was because we didn't want our kids to grow up in that environment because I knew yeah. how, how hard it was on people. Um, add to that, my, my home life, my dad was very violent growing up. And then later when we were bigger and he couldn't hit us and he was still very emotionally abusive. Um, adding on those things, it, it, I found that stoicism was, was an antidote for a lot of those things. It, helped me take much more responsibility for my emotions and my actions. And which has been a very challenging thing for me, um, mostly because my whole life I was taught, you know, that I was this worthless person and my own self-esteem, my own self-image were all very much tied to things external to me. Um, 
you know, my last relationship, I was very codependent in that. So my self-worth was dependent on what she thought of me. If she was upset or annoyed or frustrated with me, I was crushed. And, it, you know, we get into it, it was just hard for me to manage those kind of things. Um, and it's taken a lot of really hard work and a lot of dedication to move past some of those things. Um, I still struggle with them at times. You know, there's still times when I'll do things where I'll, I'll make a mistake on something. I'll hurt somebody in a way that I didn't mean to. And I'll feel like I'm just this horrible person and did, you know, the internal dialogue is just can be pretty cruel. Um, and so I have to work on that of going, okay, you know, that, that's just that's just a well, you know an fly, old tape it flies into it flies into the face of everything like you especially in your in your upbringing in the church um but just in general society that's what you're taught like you have to you have to be aware of everyone else's feelings and you have to like this is what we're in, in ingrained to do not just be ourselves and you know people it's okay if somebody doesn't like me it's okay yeah it's it's yeah, okay if I say what I want to say and you don't like it, so you don't have to agree with it. We can still have a conversation, um, mm -hmm. but this is all gone anymore. It, it, it it's frustrating, especially being in a space like I am, where I just speak my mind, uh, and you start getting like worried uh, about cancel culture or that kind of stuff because you never know who's going to hear something, take it out of context or hear a flyby clip and lose their shit. Yeah. And I think that that's, there's definitely the problem that I see with this. And I'm sure that there's, you know, speaking out on this topic is always fraught with peril. Um, you feel like you're wading into a minefield when you do, but you know, in stoicism, what we learn is that you are only offended if you choose to be offended. If some guy comes up to me on the street and he starts screaming at me in some language I don't understand, I can't really be offended because I have no idea what he's saying. Why is that any different if somebody is saying something in a language I do understand? Why should it matter? It's just if you want to think of it, it is very base, you know, a reductionist uh, perspective is it's just vibrations coming out of somebody's throat, just air passing over their vocal cords, making, you know, frequencies that are happening that's it why would i find that so offensive why would i why should i take that is something that i should be upset and offended at to the point where i would want to pull out a gun and shoot somebody or you know those kind of things right and that's what that's what people miss and so stoicism is that whole thing of like if you're feeling something if you're feeling an emotion in your body then that means that you had some kind of thought in your head and what are you doing to make sure that you are in charge of those thoughts in your head and that those thoughts are actually correct and that those thoughts actually are, are serve you well. And the thing is, is if you can get to that point where you can be a bit dispassionate when you need to be and turn that switch on and somebody can be, you know, saying anything they want for you and you just kind of go, hmm, that's interesting. You know, they have no control over you. And that's the other thing is that people forget that if they get offended, they just handed somebody a button and said, here, push this button some more and you'll piss me off and I'll get, you can get me angry. Oh, you yeah. Know? I mean, I grew up, I grew up in factory work and maintenance work and blue collar, um, in dive bars and, you know, that kind of thing was my life for, and I bartended for a decade. I, I kind of mm -hmm. claim for a long, long, long time. There is nothing you can say to offend me. You can talk about yeah. my mom. You can talk about my wife. You can, because all you're doing is talking. 
Like, yeah. I don't care. I, I just don't yeah. care. We've busted each other's balls so much in my life in different areas, different coworkers, friends, whoever, that I think I'm immune to it. And I think it serves me very well, but it is also a curse at this time because like I say shit and don't even think about it. And then yeah. people lose their mind. I'm like, wait, what? Wait, no, you, you do. No, it wasn't like that. <laughs> But everybody, yeah, everybody has an opinion about everything. Yeah. And the problem is, is that people think that if I have an opinion about something, you need to change. Right. You offended right. me. You have to change. And it's like, no, people are allowed to say whatever they want. And, and people are allowed to do anything in life that they want to. Now, they can't necessarily control the consequences of things. And so it does frustrate me when people will say things that are mean and hateful and, and other things like that. And people point out, hey, you know what? That was mean and hateful. And that's it. They don't say they have to change. They don't have to say they have to do anything. They just point out that, hey, you're being mean and hateful. Just want you to know that. And these people, I, no, I'm not. I'm allowed to say whatever I want. Yeah, of course you right. are. But be, you said something that was mean and hateful. I didn't say you had to right. change it. I didn't say you had to shut up. I didn't have say you had to, you know, go stick your head in the sand. All I'm just saying just is like you what you're it. saying is mean and hateful. <laughs> yeah. And, but the thing is, is that people think that if somebody says something offensive, that they you know, that they need to go tell that person to stop saying those things. They need to shut that person down because they were offended by it. You said something that hurt my feelings. You need to stop. And the thing is, is nobody can hurt your feelings without your consent. I think that's one of my favorite lines on that. It's like, if you are feeling an emotion because of something that somebody else said, it's because of the thoughts in your mind. Like if somebody said something, you know, mean and cruel to me and I just went, okay, wow, that was, you know, whatever, dude. I'm not offended. Well, that's, you know, that's, that's, I think that's the spiral that they, you go down, like in a, in these working relationships, I kind of mentioned um, where you're there, you're doing a shitty job. Like, and that's, I think the root of it is you're working. It sucks. I mean, I'm not going to lie. The, the jobs I had were not pleasant. Um, they're the jobs that the, the dads tell their kids that they're going to have to do if they don't study hard. Like I didn't mind those, but it's almost this like you're coping with this shitty day you have to go to all day. And so you start busting each other's balls and seeing trying to get a rise out of the person and seeing how far you can go. And that's just kind of the working relationship. And I've seen it. Um, and it's not just one. It's not just like, hey, my buddy, my one buddy, we used to do this all the time. It's been across different jobs. It's been a cost. And I think it's a coping mechanism. Um, but it really it really builds that. um it builds that, hey, you can't hurt me. You're just talking out your ass, man. Like, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, when I, so when I was in Austria, um, one of our, one of my missionary companions, they call them companions because they're always in twos, uh, was this great missionary. <laughs> he, he, we didn't click very well, mostly because in my family, sarcasm and those kind of things growing up were never meant to be funny. They were always meant, meant to be, hurtful. they were always hurtful. There was never like, you know, good natured ribbing of things like that. Um, and so I didn't know how to take that except to be offended, be hurt by it. And he was a pretty strong personality. And he and this other missionary would just rib each other so hard and give each other so much shit all the time. And I would just sit and watch like, how do they put up with this? And I, so we didn't work very well because, you know, he would just, you know, he was one of these people who just kind of pushed hard and you just kind of had to go, Hey, this is where you this is where i start and you stop and you'd be like cool um 
and it took me years to recognize that and realize that that he was that was his way of playing that was his way of teasing that was his way of you know and you know and he didn't mean harm by it at all it was it was good natured ribbing and it was fun and it was teasing and it was playful but i didn't know how to take that because that was not the environment i grew up in any type of sarcasm was always a slap it wasn't sarcasm it was well yeah if you gave sarcasm back it came back with a it came back with a physical punishment but something that would be considered sarcasm in my mind was used as a, a like no it's not sarcasm it's what i mean like you're a piece of shit like, you know yeah. um yeah and and when you run in and that was always something that i was very conscious of even though like i felt that hey you can come at me with whatever i grew up with a salty old dad that like yeah just just made me made me immune to most things but um what? i was always conscious of the people and you can read people like i can i, I guess i can i you know hospitality for that long you learn to read people or you don't make money um but I could read people and you let off. Um, and like you said, this is where you take off. And I, and this is, we go our separate ways when, when we get to this point. Um, and you just respect that. But did you start seeking stoicism before you left the church? After you left the church, did it kind of fill a void? Um, how did you come about this? Um, yeah, that's kind of a longer story, but no, after I left the church, I, then I got divorced. I had about eight years where I was single and I was just enjoying my life. I did all those things in college that I should have done in college, but never did. Um, just, so I was, I was playing a lot, um, had a lot of fun. And then afterwards I, I ran into, so I, I started going to a lot of raves and that was kind of my thing. I started DJing. I was having a blast in the EDM scene and then kind of fell in with the Burning Man crowd, uh, which was really a lot of fun. And that that kind of became my new home and my family. Um, and then the woman I dated for last, you know, about nine years, I started dating her right about the same time and kind of pulled her into that world. And that, that basically became my, my home, my community and everything for quite some time. And then... About five, six years ago, so I guess in 2017, 28, yeah, right, beginning of 2018, uh, actually, so in 2017, I was listening to Tim Ferriss's podcast, and he mentioned a book by William Irvine called, I think it was The Art of, The, the Guide to the Good Life, The Art of Stoic Joy, or something like that. I can't remember the exact title. I always mess it up, even though I keep going, I need to remember this, but I, and so I was like, okay, and Tim said, this book changed my life, and I was like, okay, Tim reads a lot of books. And if he's saying that this book changed his life, then I think it's worth looking at. And so I bought it, read it. Some things kind of made sense. I was like, okay, that's not bad. But it didn't it didn't like sink in really well for me. And I was like, oh, why didn't this work for me? And then, so I'm like, okay, let me get the audio book and I'll listen to it while I'm driving to work, you know, commuting to work each day. And I found that that 20 minute drive to and from work each day just listening to that and getting a nugget and thinking about it as you know the day went on, then things started clicking for me. It was like, oh wow, wait a second, that's a that's a really powerful idea. Wow, okay, that's that's a good one. And so that was kind of my second read was was where it really started to make sense for me. Um, and then around twenty eighteen, so that was you know late to twenty seventeen. Twenty eighteen came around and uh, I was on Amazon. I. Ryan Holiday's, you know, Stoic Journal came up, you know, Daily Journal. I was like, okay, yeah, I'll buy that. And I started, 
doing that, you know, it's the first of the year. And one of my New Year's resolutions was I wanted to start a podcast. And I tried starting one before about music because I'm really into music. I love music soundtracks. It's kind of my big thing. Film scores and, and good video game scores are just something that I love. And so I tried something on that. It, it fell flat. You know, I, I was too anxious about it. Um, and I was like, okay, I'm going to start a podcast this year. I have no idea what I'm going to start it on. And I'm just going to put it out, even if it completely sucks. And because I was doing the Stoic Journal, I was like, well, I think I'll just start talking about Stoicism. So I hopped on this app. It was called Anchor. And I would just record something every single day and put it out there. And, you know, my first 50, 60 episodes and we're done on there. And some of them really sucked. And some of them, you know, I put like music in the background and, you know, people <laughs> complain about that. It's like, I can't remove it. I'm sorry. It was part of the app and the way that it worked. Um, but then once I hit a, but, um, I made a promise to my, to my ex-partner that at the time that I would do a hundred episodes before I quit. Cause she's like, you have this tendency to, when things get hard to quit. So you, you are not allowed to quit until you do a hundred episodes and you have to promise me that. And I will support you in doing this. And I was like, okay. And so I did. And I ended up doing 137 days in a row. So podcast every single day for 137 days. And then reached a point where I was like, okay, I'm kind of burnt out on this. I'm going to turn it into a weekly thing. And so I did that. I did another 30 or 40 episodes, took a break for a year and a half. I was pretty burnt out. Things in my personal relationship were a bit rocky. Um, and you know, it took a number of years for those to kind of play themselves out. And so I had a few times. So then about a year and a half after that, you know, COVID happened, all of that. So middle of COVID, um, I was like, you know what? I've got, been writing a lot. I've got all these ideas. I want to start sharing them. So I started up again, did it for another year. And then um, I think it was 2021. I'm trying to remember exactly. Um, stopped at the, at the beginning of the year. I guess it was 2022. I, I can't remember. Anyway, took another break because my relationship was completely falling apart. Felt like an absolute hypocrite, you know, here I, because I was just dealing with so much, so much trauma, so much past history that was just coming up, uh, causing a lot of problems in my relationship. And I just wasn't handling things very well. Felt like an imposter, felt like a complete hypocrite. And so I said, you know what, I'm actually, I'm, I'm stopping my podcast because I want to learn how to do Unreal Engine, which is a 3D programming engine uh, for writing video games and doing films and stuff like that and put the podcast on hold bought this really expensive computer and had absolutely no desire to work on unreal engine no desire to work on music and i just play video games i use that you know that high-end computer just to play video games and <laughs> so i recognized that man i think i'm in a bit of a depression here and i was just like okay it's gonna going to sit with this for a while and then had some big life lessons that happened in around may of that year and was like okay i think i think it's time again and so i started the podcast back up and because some of the things that i had finally learned and the and in this point the biggest lesson was recognizing that you need to be the source of love for yourself you cannot outsource your self-esteem your self-love to anybody else and that self-acceptance everything about you, even the parts you don't like, even the things that you think are absolutely shitty, that you just have to accept that that's part of you. You don't have to like everything, but you can at least accept everything. And I did this crazy exercise and I, and I will do this with friends of mine when they're struggling with things, I'll, you know, and I'll share it here with you because it was such a, an eye-opening thing and it's really, really simple. So you sit down 
you take a piece of paper and you write down everything that you don't like about yourself. And you just, you know, you, you write for as long as you can until you run out of things that you can actually write about yourself. And then you take a little bit of a break, you come back and you look at it. And the first thing you need to do is look at everything that is truly something that you do that you don't like about yourself. Or if it's something that you do that you think other people don't like about you. And if it's things that you think other people don't like about you, I mean, keep those in mind because other, other people's judgments are worth at least paying attention to. But don't make that your litmus test of whether it's something that needs to be changed or whatever like that. But look at the things you honestly don't like about yourself. And then take a step back and look at it as if you were looking at this list and it was your friend's list. You know, some friend handed you this and said, hey, these are all the things I don't like about myself. Can you accept these things about me? And look at that list and see if there's anything on there that you honestly can't accept. And I bet you there's probably nothing on there unless you are an absolutely vile, evil, awful person, which means you probably wouldn't be doing this exercise in the first place. But even if so, you may have stuff to work on and that's okay. But I bet that for 99% of the people out there, if they look at that list, they're going to see that. And if it was just a, a list that their friend handed them, they would be able to accept that about their friend and they would still love their friend. So why not be as good to yourself as you can be to your friends? Yeah. I, I, when I, mean, I did that exercise, I went, I went, oh my gosh, there's nothing on this list that's that horrible. Why do I think I'm such a horrible person on this? Yeah. And so that for me was a giant step in self-acceptance because there wasn't anything on there that I couldn't accept about myself. Nothing on there that I was just like, oh my God, this makes me that horrible of a person. It was just like, well, these are things that are really annoying. These are things that aren't very nice. But they are. There's nothing worse on here that my friends don't do or my friends don't struggle with. So I still love them. I still hang out with them. I still think they're great people. Why can't I just turn that around and give that to myself? Yeah. And the other thing I mean, that I recognize, my, my friend, my friends call and say that they got a dead body, and I'm like, you need a shovel or you need lie. I mean, with I mean, yeah. <laughs> those are the type of friends I have. Very few, but the few that are there, I. I if I asked as a friend, if I accepted the things that they did, it's just, it is what it is. And I think you have to treat yourself that way too, that you are, yeah. you are who you are. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing is, is that part of the reason why we have such a hard time with that is that we think we need people outside of us to fill that hole. We think we need other people to give us that love that we are afraid to give to ourselves. And the thing is, is that if you don't love yourself, you've got this big hole. You're like a cup with a giant hole in the bottom of it. It doesn't matter how much love somebody else is pouring in there. It's just going to drain out because you won't believe it. Because if you don't think you're worth loving yourself, you don't think that other people could love you. You don't think you're worth their love. So it doesn't matter how much love other people pour on you. I mean, we see this with celebrities who end up killing themselves. They have people who adore them. They have people all around them who'd be willing to give them all kinds of love and acceptance and affection and kindness. And yet they dislike themselves so much that all of this love and attention means nothing. And so it really comes down to you learning that you need to accept yourself, that it doesn't matter if anybody else accepts you. It's about you accepting yourself. And once you do that, you are so much better able to accept other people around you you are able to give love to other people around you in ways that you couldn't before. I mean, I like to think of it, the, the image that came up when I was talking with one of my um, 
one of my therapists, I had two therapists for a while. They were both having to be older East German women for whatever reason, just kind of happened that way. <laughs> um, they're both great, both very different. And one of them was explaining to her, I was like, I was like, it's kind of like you, you have all this heavy, dark shit that is just that you have. And you're just, you're kind of like, I don't want people to see this dark shit about me, all these terrible, horrible things that I think about myself. But it's those heavy, dark things that are kind of like, kind of like pieces of stars. And, you know, if you know how a sun works, it's, it's all these heavy metals, these gases, iron, all kinds of stuff, just slowly coming together and it starts to compress. And once that ignition switch hits, it's like, boom, all that warmth and all of that heat starts generating outwards. And we're in that stage where we're like, it's cold out here. We, and we're, you know, we have other stars around us and we're like, please give me your love, give me your light. And then suddenly once we find that ignition switch, it's like, oh, wait, I can feel warm myself and I can start giving this light to other people and helping them out. And so I think that when you focus too much on what other people think of you and not what you think of yourself and learning to accept yourself, that you're just going to stay out in that cold for a long time and you're just going to be miserable. And again, it doesn't matter how much love people pour on you. Until you can love yourself, you won't believe that that love is actually, you know, worth accepting and that they could actually love you. Yeah. And you mentioned like the heavy shit and uh, people want to hide that and like suck it in and don't want people to know um, the dirty little things, the the uh, bad things you've done or whatever. Uh, And I really came to a place that, you know, that is that's who I am. And there yeah. might be something that aggravates you about me, but if I tell you that that fucked up thing that happened to me, you might understand why I, I act that way a little bit. Yeah. Yep. And the it's by doing this type of thing, it really gets rid of a lot of shame because I think that we as a culture carry a lot of shame. And I think a lot of it is from our religious background. You know, as a culture, we have these things that we should feel shame for all of these things. And like, no, you shouldn't feel shame for being a human. You shouldn't feel shame because, you know, you want to have sex. You shouldn't feel shame because you get angry at somebody because they were rude to you. And you, you, you need to learn where your limits are. You need to learn how to set boundaries. You need to learn how to be respectful of other people. But you shouldn't feel shame for just being a person. And the whole idea of like original sin in the Catholic Church, that, I always thought it was just a stupid idea. You're so bad from your birth. You know, I mean, you're telling me that this little baby that was born is is sinful from birth. Yeah. Oh my God, this kid needs to do anything. I mean, they're just sitting here going, hey, I'm completely helpless, 100% helpless. I can't do anything for myself. Can you at least love me and give me some food and change my diaper? <laughs> yeah. You're well, telling that me that that's my, sinful. My, well, and- my, my religious experience, uh, my parents, my parents, um, my dad was a Lutheran growing up and then he kind of just, he went to Vietnam when he came back and kind of drifted away. Like when you see shit like that, you really don't believe in God much after. Um, and, but my mom was Methodist and went to church, took me to, took me to church, went to Sunday school and all that. But when I got old enough, it was, uh, it was a, he can decide what he wants to do. He's old enough to decide what he wants to do. We'll take you wherever you want to go. You want to go to someplace else. You want to keep going where you're going. 
And so I took advantage of it and I started exploring the different little, but it was all Christianity in my town of 8,000 people in Western New York. So I, but I hit all the different, the Catholic, the Protestant, everything. There was a Mormon church in my, in my town. Um, so I kind of started exploring those. And then I went to college um, and I was still in that mode of, I'm trying to discover what the hell's going on here. So I started to go um, with my Jewish friends and met some Muslim friends and this and that and went to all these different religions. And I started asking myself, they all kind of seem the same and they're all a little different. There's all different things you can do in some and you can't do in others. And if you do these things, then you're not going to heaven um, or whatever you want. They wanted to call it. And I went, hmm. who's right? Because there's X amount of people that are Christians and there's X amount of people that are, somebody's wrong. Like, how does, how does this, how does your God allow for this? And, and I started asking yeah. these questions and I went, you know what? It's what I make of it. And it's, it's in me. Um, and it, yeah, it was this big realization that they all seemed a whole lot alike. Yeah. And if you talk to individual people in every single religion, every one of them is going to have their own take on the doctrine. So everybody's religion is personal. It's not it's not dogmatic. It, I mean, we like to think of it as dogmatic or they like to think of it as dogmatic, but it's, you know, everybody's religion is their own personal thing. And so for me, I don't believe that there's some white bearded dude up in the sky, you know, looking down and, and judging every little thing that I do or don't do. Um you know, I'm pretty much agnostic as it comes right now. And for me, that actually means that this life that I have now is incredibly important. And it's incredibly important for me to do good here because this is the only life I have. And the thing is, is that I feel good when I do good. When I try to help other people, I feel better. So people, I was like, and I have people, I had one friend of mine who grew up Christian and, and was kind of, he was in college at the time. And he was like, so you don't believe in God? And I'm like, no. And he's like, well, I don't understand that. I'm like, what don't you understand? He's like, well, then what stops you from going out and, you know, doing all these horrible things? I'm like, is religion the only thing that stops you from going out and doing these horrible things? I don't do these horrible things because the idea of shooting somebody doesn't, that seems like a horrible thing that feels bad to me. I wouldn't want somebody doing that to me, first off. So even just from the, the whole empathetic side of things, like, would I want somebody to do that to me? No. So just from that alone, I wouldn't go out and do those things. I wouldn't steal from people because, again, I feel like that's just a horrible thing. And the thing is, is that I was just like, if if those are the only reasons that you don't do those things, then you need to check yourself and figure out maybe there's something wrong with me that I need to check into that that the only thing that keeps me from damaging other people and in multiple ways and financially, physically, whatever, I might not go to heaven. Is that I might not go to heaven. You really need to look inside <laughs> yourself and figure out. Cause that to me, that seems a little bit pathological of some kind of something else. Yeah. That you need to look Cause I'm like, I don't want to show the nap though. You just describe the nap. You're an, you're, you're just an anarchist. We're all just anarchists. Yeah. I'm just like, I, I do good things because I, one, I feel better. And two, I want other people to be happy. I want our whole society to be better. I want us to keep moving forward. I don't feel the need to go down and tear other people down in order for us to move forward as a society and as people. And when, you, when I see people trying to ban books and other things like this, it's just, to me, it's just ridiculous. 
they're so afraid of ideas. They're so afraid of considering things that are outside of what they want their worldview to be that they consider them scary. I'm like, I've read books that, that had ideas that I found abhorrent, but I wanted to understand them. I wanted to understand why people thought these were okay ideas or why they were even worth considering. And I think that even in those piles of shit, there's, you know, there's definitely some gold in there from time to time. And, it, but at the very least understanding how somebody who's a little whacked out in their brain thinks, you know, okay, then I can have a little more compassion for somebody who, you know, who has these weird ideas of things. But I think yeah. that if you, if you're reaching a point where you're scared of a book, <laughs> then, and that's the other thing, uh, that was the other thing I'm like, in the Mormon church, they were very big on you're not supposed to read anything that was anti-Mormon. You're not supposed to read anything that spoke ill of the, the leaders of the church. And I was like, well, if this is true, it shouldn't matter what I read. Truth is truth. If right. this is really true, then it doesn't matter what anybody says, what anybody does, what anybody writes, then that's just, it's true. If I can be dissuaded by something that is truer, I'm going to go with the thing that's truer. Right. You know, it's like, Sorry, guys, you know, you have to have a better argument than just don't read those things that they talk bad about us. You have to say, okay, here's this other thing that's wrong because of X, Y, and Z and show that to here's me. Here's a rebuttal. And they couldn't do that. Yeah, they couldn't do that because it was just like, you have to take it on faith. And I'm like, sorry. I've I've had many, um, I've had many, many confrontations. So I, I used to go to Bible study for, um, not because I was, interested in um discussing the bible is more interested in intellectual discussion so i would i would figure out what bible verse was being discussed and i would read it and think about it and believe it or not or agree with it or not i would just go to have the discussion and so i would i would play devil's advocate in bible study and i at more than one time had people physically like hurting because I was challenging what they were saying in their safe space because Bible study to them was where we go to all discuss what we all believe. Yeah, it was. It's and a, it's Bible study to, be... to me is discuss the Bible, which means yeah. have a discussion, not like, Oh, we just all agree. So everything's peaches. Um, and, and to watch people get physically um, agitated when you would challenge an idea. And I didn't care what they believed. Oh, mm -hmm. you can believe whatever you want. I'm just wondering why. And maybe if you believe it that much and it's that true, you can persuade me. Yeah. Well, and that's one of the things that I do appreciate about some of the, the Jewish traditions is that their study of the Talmud was, hey, we're going to argue about this. It wasn't like we are going to memorize this and agree on it. And everybody nod their heads and go, uh-huh. It was well, what is the mind of God? If we don't discuss it, we can't understand the mind of God because we're too stupid to understand it just to read it and go, yeah, that's what he meant. So we have to argue about it. We have to, you know, and so they, there is that argumentativeness. You know, you see the old two Jewish guys arguing about something and then they give each other a big hug and a kiss on the cheek. But it's it was that understanding that you need to do that. You need to be willing to question your beliefs if you actually want it to be stronger. And... You what know, a, what, I, a, what I a, there's no better way thing. to there, there's no better way to strengthen that to have to, to to defend it but also try to challenge yourself to break it like if you're really steadfast in a belief and you truly believe it you should be able to try to talk yourself out of it 
and not be able to do it. You should be able to have somebody else challenge you and you should be able to stand up for it. And if you can't do both of those things, maybe you need to explore it a little bit more or it might not be truly what you believe. You might just think you do. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There were a lot of things that when I finally left the church, I had to question on those things because they were just implicit beliefs that had been handed to me. And, you know, it was just like, oh, I mean, this is one, you know, this will probably offend a lot of people, but, you know, I, I need to, I want to bring it up because I think it's, it's a, it's kind of a funny one, but um, there's this implicit, uh, I don't know what you would call it, uh, not necessarily a bias, but this implicit understanding within the church that women don't like sex but that the women who do are all just whores so women are you know are, are treated you know, basically it's the you know the virgin or the the whore kind of thing like women don't like sex and if they do they must be whores and so um you know it was it was just kind of ridiculous and so you you develop this attitude as a man that the only reason that your wife is having sex with you is because she wants to please you and that's it she's not getting much pleasure out of it that it's just she's just a good-hearted person and that's why she's doing that but if she enjoys sex then oh there must be something wrong with her and you you develop this warped sense of sexuality <laughs> within there which was really screwed up and did not help my marriage at all because i can't imagine you know, it does <laughs> Oh God. Yeah. I mean, it was just, it was awful. And I feel bad for my ex-wife because I had so much guilt and shame wrapped up around sex that I, I wasn't very good and we couldn't talk about it and all of these things. And she had, hadn't been a member before. And so she, she wasn't, you know, so for her that sex was just kind of a normal thing of life. But for me, it was this, Oh my God, it's this, Oh, and it was, had all of this just messy bullshit that was wrapped around it. So after I got divorced, I was like, okay, I've got to figure out how to break some of these things. And so when I started dating, I was just like, you know, I just had to throw all my conceptions out there about what this was. And so it wasn't until after I had had, you know, a few different partners where I was just like, there was one time I was, you know, I asked this one girl, I'm like, so do you, I'm like, you really like sex, don't you? She was like, she's like, yes a lot and the fact that i'm yes that's why i'm here because i'm really enjoying this with you and i'm just like okay she's like and and she kind of understood where i was coming from she understood my background and she grew up catholic and so she was just like yeah um and she was just like yeah unfortunately where i live you know she was out of town and she was visiting so unfortunately where i live you know it's very catholic and so yeah the the guys don't i wouldn't be doing this with any of the guys there because they won't <laughs> they are just so uh um, right they're so uptight about these things. And I was just like, Oh, okay. And she's like, yeah. And you know, and she was flying home. She wrote me this email saying, thank you so much. This was such a fun time with you. And, uh, but man, my hormones are raging and I really wish you were here with me or I was there with you. And it's like, you know, and so for me, it was just like that had, it helped me knock that belief out of my head that women didn't like sex, which then made my, you know, my relationships after that quite a bit better because I didn't feel this guilt of saying, you know, Hey, you know, you want to go have sex, you know, or, or talking about sex and being much more open about sex, that it wasn't this shameful thing anymore, but because right. of the way that the church approaches sex, there's a lot of shame around it. I mean, incredible amounts of shame that are just tied into sex and it ruins a lot of people's sex lives and ruins a lot of marriages because you feel like you can't talk with your, with your spouse about sex, which you should be able to, that should be one of the, that should be the person you can talk to about these things. Right. Right. 
Well, and I don't want to sound like a predator or anything, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't not perk an ear up when I was talking to a girl in college and she said when she went to an all girls Catholic school, I'd be like, yep, she, she's ready to figure it out right now. So I'm in college, you're in college. I can show you how to figure it out. (laughs) But that, I mean, mean, it was never, it was like, you could, you could, you could write the playbook out when you met a girl that was from a, a all girls school um, or even guys you would talk to that were, came from guys uh, prep schools. Um, you could tell what they were thinking and it wasn't what they yeah. were taught in school. <laughs> yeah. Because they were trying to figure this, this shit out. And you know, what they've been taught was just incredibly unhealthy. And that's one of the things that I like about the burning man community is that, that, you, you have all kinds of people from all kinds of different lifestyles with all kinds of different ideas. And it's a very open community. I have plenty of friends who are polyamorous, who are in open relationships, who some are spiritual, some are not. Some are still religious, some are not. I mean, it's all over the place. But there's this, there's this big acceptance of who I am doesn't mean that you have to be just like me. And I can appreciate these differences and I can appreciate and understand that. And, you know, being able to talk about anything and everything with these people has just been wonderful. I mean, you know, there sometimes we'll have these parties where we're just sitting around talking about all kinds of things and, you know, people bring up, yeah, well, one time I was with this one woman and the crazy, you know, they had this crazy habit of doing X, Y, and Z and we'll all get a big laugh out of it. And it's not like this horrible, shameful thing. And they aren't shaming that other person. It's, it's hilarious. And it's just, it's fun. And it's sex is one of the most natural things in the world. And yet it has been, taught as this horrible shameful thing and plenty of other things that way as well um and i think that and i think it's really a shame because i think a lot of people miss out on having very strong relationships healthy relationships because of these ideas that are planted in their heads and how they're brought up this way well it's it's i think a lot of it is you know uh, josh put in there nothing but mammals we were joking around earlier about uh the bloodhound gang song um and it happened to come, you know, full circle here, like four hours later in this interview. But this is what this is what our bodies tell us to do. I mean, go to the zoo. Like there, there's no one teaching the monkeys religion. And I can stand there and they'll masturbate in front of me. They'll throw poo at me. They'll have sex in front of me. There's no shame in the monkey world. Um, mm-hmm. The only reason there's shame in our world is is man imposed bullshit yeah so so get out of the man imposed bullshit and and yeah. listen to your body yeah and i i think there there are social norms that are helpful because i mean obviously having sex in front of children is probably not the well, best yeah idea. i mean <laughs> you know or adding the, adding the opening out in the cold and i mean i think there are basic social norms but i think that for the most part you know get out of everybody else's sex life and let them enjoy theirs you know you just because i have a sex life that you don't agree with doesn't mean you have to have to get involved in my life, you know, go do your thing. Um, and I think that, you know, I think that that culture of repression, um, especially from religion, has really damaged, you know, so many societies in so many ways. And it is also, you know, and, and this is one, you know, one of the things that it's kind of interesting, I think, has been a spillover where there's a lot of confusion in stoicism. And this is one thing I definitely want to address on this is that the term stoic has come to meant unemotional in in kind of a classical context. And the reason why that term came about is that because a Stoic will look at something 
and they will because they accept all of their emotions they don't respond or well they don't react in stressful situations in the way that most people do and so if somebody is stoic it feels like they're unemotional and that's not the case they feel that emotion they accept that emotion but they understand that that emotion should not rule how they react to something but that they will take is they'll take just that beat and they will choose how they want to respond to something you know it's kind of like you know for me i say it's kind of like watching george clooney you know i love watching him because the you know people will throw all kinds of mean vicious things towards him and he just smiles and laughs it off he doesn't get mad when people say awful things about him he just laughs about it you know and he because he knows exactly who he is he's comfortable with himself they could say all these horrible mean vicious awful things about him and he just kind of shrugs his shoulders like yeah, whatever and he's comfortable with himself absolutely and so he knows how to accept his emotions he knows how to accept things to throw his way he's in, completely in charge of how he wants to respond in any situation and so for me that's a really good example and so a stoic may not look like they have emotions they do they're just in charge of their emotions they don't let their emotions run them something stressful happens your 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 typical response might be to scream and yell and get all kinds of agitated and and you know lose your shit over something but a stoic is going to look at it and go okay is losing my shit over this going to be helpful no, and I'm just going to feel awful about it. I'm going to feel stressed about it. I'm going to feel all of this awful stuff. Why don't I just take a beat here and just be like, whew, this is heavy. Okay. <laughs> okay. Cool. And I, then they I'm, I'm choose how this. they want to respond to it. I think I'm learning this naturally um, as my wife and I are training or traveling and we are training. <laughs> uh, we're traveling and we're learning to work together. Um, we're going through things like we plan for two years to, to go nomad and live in a, in a travel trailer and travel around. Um, you can't plan for getting stuck with your truck or um, having having two feet of rain in, in a week and a half, and not being able to get out of your campsite for six days. Like you can't plan for these things. You can't research these things. Um, and as they're coming along, I've noticed sometimes I react one way and and full of emotion and anger holy shit, we're fucking stuck, blah, you know. And then there's other times where I'm like, okay, we're stuck. How do we get out? Yeah. And the, the the moments that I make the second choice always turn out better. Everything yeah. works out better. Everybody's happier. Um, no one's mad at each other at the end. Uh, and we're both calmer going through it. And if either of us start to get a little emotional in the situation, we both do. And if one of us is is stepping back saying, it's, it, it is what it is. Just let's, let's get freaked out about it later after we're unstuck. And then by the time we're unstuck, we don't care anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's, a, that's a very big thing. And the thing is, is that this brings up another big thing within uh, stoicism. And it's the idea of amor fati, which means to love your fate. And what that means is that you don't just accept everything that life brings your way, which you kind of have to because it's happening to you, but that you learn to love everything that happens to you. And you think, well, why should I do that? Well, think of it this way. It's happening to you. Whether you like it or not, it is happening. And you being upset about it, you being enraged about it, you being absolutely pissed off about it, doesn't change anything about it. All it does is make you feel more worse and stressed out about it. So why not learn to love it? Because then you can actually do something about it because it's going to happen anyway. 
it's just that's yeah. it's happening so just learn to love it second is is if you can learn to love everything that happens to you then everything becomes an advantage to you for example if you're short don't lament the fact that you're short don't lament the fact that you're not six feet tall you know find all the advantages being short and love that love that right. thing to me a fantastic example of this and i use this in my podcast fairly often because i just i i'm a huge fan of his and i adore him is uh, peter dinklage he's a little person and holy crap his turn as Tyrion lannister blew my mind this character is wicked and sharp and smart and so powerful and yet he's in, a, in in such a position of weakness but he uses every advantage that he has and his wits and his mind and it's just a, he's such a brilliant character and so for me that's an example of somebody who's like yep i'm short and i'm gonna use the shit out of this i'm a small guy and i'm gonna use the shit out of this and i'm gonna make the best of this he doesn't lament the fact that he's not Shaq. he goes right. yep i am yeah. what i am and he does his thing and it's brilliant and we're better for that because he's not sitting there you know feeling sorry for himself that he's not some other way than he is he's taking what he has and he uses it have you ever read um happiness is a serious problem by dennis prager i have not it's um it's interesting so when i was going through a divorce uh had a friend hand it to me said fucking read this and i'm like i don't read shit and he's like no read this it's it's like 130 pages it's it's stupid silly easy read but he talks a lot about um that we've stopped being happy um yeah. that not that being happy is a serious problem the fact that we're not happy and when you're talking about st loving everything that happens to you and it's going to happen to you regardless he has a theory in the book that he calls the flat tire allotment um every every five years you're going to get three flat tires you just are they might be all in one week. They might be all in one day. They might be all evenly spaced over five years, but you're going to get three flat tires. You might get four, you might get two, but so deal with it. So when you get a flat tire, yeah. it's, it, it is what it is. It's just going to happen. Uh, and it, it just made me, re, it, it flashed me back to that kind of moment. Um, but that book, if you ever, if you get a chance to read it, it's super easy, quick read, but I've actually bought and given away, um, three or four copies of this book because it, it was that kind of impactful one of those ones that you you're like okay i'm gonna read it again real quick i already know it. it'll take me two minutes but i'm gonna hand it to the next person that i know really needs it um yeah. it's one of those yeah for me one of those was definitely the the subtle art of not giving a fuck was a good one for that um yeah. there's been a couple of others that pop up from time to time uh, one that I just recently read, which it's a little bit deeper, but I think it's approachable for a lot of people who are kind of like on the fence about philosophy or think philosophy is something that's way over their head. Um, it's called The Courage to be Disliked. It's actually written by two Japanese uh, philosophers. It's written in the in the kind of the dialogue form that I was mentioning earlier about Plato and Socrates, where there's a philosopher and he's discussing with a young student you know, about life. And they talk a lot about Alderian or Adlerian, I'm sorry, yes, Adlerian uh, psychology, which is basically stoicism. Uh, it's just from a guy named um, Adler, who was a contemporary of Jung and Freud. Um, but everything they were talking about, I'm like, yep, that's pretty much stoicism, just with a different label. You know, and to me, uh, Buddhism is just like stoicism with a different label. So there's so many Buddhist things which are you know, come across, you know, basically Greco, the way that I look at it, Stoicism is Greco-Roman uh, 
uh, Buddhism. And because there's so many of the ideas that are exactly the same, you know, like one of the first tenets of Buddhism is that life is suffering. Amor fati, you know, except the suffering happens, except the life happens. The second tenet is once you accept that life is suffering, it's not as bad anymore. Basically, it's like, yeah, shit happens. And if you accept that shit happens, it's just not so bad anymore. Um, but if you expect like, one of my friends in Seattle, actually, you, you, when you were talking, when you were explaining stoicism and, and this kind of, it is stuck in the back of my head and I meant to write it down. I didn't, um, when he kind of, he was looking for a place to take his kids for religion and they were searching around Seattle and they went to a Buddhist temple. He's Buddhist now, but the thing that, that, um, cemented it for him was in the lobby and it was like the oldest buddhist temple in seattle in the lobby the i, I can't remember is it sensei uh, i can't remember um the leader of the the temple it said question everything even me yep. and he was like okay i'm good i'm good so when you were talking about uh, questioning it, this is what we do this is this is how we learn and grow i was like okay yeah that's that sunk with him and he he changed his philosophy and he he always corrects me when i say buddhism as a religion he's like it's not it's a philosophy it's not a religion yeah. it's different yeah it's a it way is, of life much, yeah it is and that's one of the things that i really appreciated um there is some woo-woo bits to certain sects within that and that was the part that they didn't really work for me where stoicism is very much more grounded in logic and rationality which which tends to work a little bit better for me but i really enjoy the magic though of things as well i'm not I mean, people think that because i'm this you know like the accidental philosopher i guess i can call myself a philosopher i'm doing this for five years so i know this pretty well um but i really enjoy the magic and the mystery of society as well i mean i'm a musician i'm an artist i really enjoy the creative process i enjoy randomness and these things happening and so you know, one of my favorite books I just finished listening to on tape is called The Night Circus, which is all about magic. It's this fictional book and the prose in it is just so beautiful and the images. And I'm like, man, I wish that I, I wish that I could be in that circus because it is just so ridiculously magical. And, it, you know, they, you know, in it, they have fortune tellers who are using tarot cards and stuff like that. But the way that they're describing how it works, I, I still love it. I mean, I love fantasy and science fiction and those kind of things. So for me, just because I'm very logical and rational on those things doesn't mean that I don't enjoy the magic of things. I enjoy magical films. I mean, I was watching Shadow and Bone last night on Netflix, which is all about magic. And, and for me, it, I appreciate it just as much, but I don't look at it as that's a, a, uh, an explanation of reality. And I was listening to uh, Tim Ferriss's podcast with David Deutsch, and he talks about it. He's like, when you have something that is supernatural giving an explanation for something it's a terrible explanation because it's not a real explanation there's nothing it's based on it's just saying well this god up here or this magical thing up here said it and so that's why that's like your parents saying well because it's the worst answer for anything and he goes that's why you know i think that those are bad do i think that religions can be a decent moral compass for people sure if that's what it should be it should be seeking for the moral questions of things you know, if we used religion as something as a way to look at moral implementations of AI that are coming up, because as we get deeper into AI and generalized AI, that's going to be a very big question. How do we create ethical AIs? That's where I want something religious to weigh in, because I want something that is looking for the humanity and dealing with things on human terms and the human problems and the squishy bits, the parts that are not good at being turned into mathematical equations or logical algorithms. 
we need those people and those types of people to weigh in. And that's why I have a great respect for the Dalai Lama is that he looks at his position as, as the leader of the Buddhist philosophy, religion, whatever you want to name it, as helping people who are in positions of power, whether that's scientific power, money power, political power, you know, whatever that power is, to look at things in an ethical framework, in the humanistic framework. How do we do the most good for the most people? How do we help bring people out of poverty? How do we reduce suffering? And so it's never of you have to believe what I believe, but that magic, those magical ideas are the things that help us also think forward. Most of the inventions that have happened, especially in the last 40 years with the, with the revolution of computers, have happened because of science fiction. I mean, look at our cell phones. The original cell phones basically came from Star Trek. You know, there's so many, you know, we have video calls. They also came from Star Trek as well. And yeah, this is a great thing. You know, a quote right there, science explains what we know. Magic is feeling empowered by what we can't yet explain. And as Asimov once said, um, uh, anything that is future, that is significantly forward in technology seems like magic to a backwards people. And it's this idea, you know, if I went back a hundred years and I had, you know, a television, man, people would be looking at that like, what in the world? How did you, you know, or if I went back to my phone and I still had battery and I had some videos saved on there, I'm like, hey, look, check this out. How did those little people get in there? Oh my gosh, you know. Or if one of them ended up here and saw us talking between Portland and Arkansas um, on a computer over a magical um, signal, because I'm using Starlink. So I got no wires connected to anything right now. And I'm talking to you live on a video. Uh, exactly. Bring somebody, the from, bring somebody from 1920 and tell yeah. them you're doing this. Yeah. And I mean, and the latency is what, you know, 40 milliseconds, maybe 50 milliseconds. So less than a second, because it's, that means it's almost real time. It's yep. that's how incredible it is because we've been able to do these types of things with fiber optic cables and so on. So for me, it's pretty magical what we have now. And so even though I work hard to be very, you know, scientific and very rational based like that, I'm big into creativity and magic and we need these type of dreams and they're fun as well. I mean, like I said, the prose and the poetry and the night circus, you know, talking about magic and these things, it's delightful. It's fun. It's, it's fantastical. And I think that we definitely need those. And so well, your for brain me, is in balance. Your, your left yeah. and right are, they're playing in unison and they're complementing each other. I think a lot of people pigeonhole them. They're like, okay, I'm very, I'm very analytical and this and that. And they don't let the other creative side. And then people that are very, very creative won't let that more rigid, logical thing sneak in. And that's fine. I mean, you can go through life that way, no problem. Have have a kick-ass life. But I think when they play in unison and they bounce back and forth and you can live kind of both sides, um, you're more balanced and you're more creative, you're more productive, and they complement each other. And they they um, complement each other and, and, and boost each other up. Yeah. And, and along with this, since I, I mentioned uh, AI just a minute ago, one of the things that I've been having some discussions with different people on is not necessarily from an ethical point of view, but from a point of view of shortcutting yourself. So there's a lot, I see video after video after video, and it's almost to the point where I just want to you know throw up because it's making me sick. People are like, hey, this is how you create content using AI. And it's just all of these things. These people are using AI to, you know, write their podcast, to write, you know, 
their marketing copy, right? You know, have it do all of these things for you and write a book for you and all these things. I'm like, sure, that's great. And yeah, you might be able to put a book out, you know, in a week or something like that. Is it good? Who knows? That's, you know, I'm not going to be the judge of that. But what they're doing is they are handicapping themselves. That's like, you know, flying to the top of Mount Everest in a helicopter and jumping out and planting a flag and saying that you climbed Everest. You didn't climb Everest. You didn't put any effort. You put barely any effort into it. You had enough money. You paid a helicopter to take you up there. The thing is, is that when you do something like that, you shortcut yourself. So when I work on a podcast episode, people, it's funny because people are always like, so how many of these do you pop out in a day, you know, four or five? And I'm like, are you kidding me? (laughs) I take about four to six hours of writing, of journaling, of taking these ideas and really just scraping them hard and combing through them and tearing them apart and finding the connections between these ideas and digging for those nuggets. Because for a number of reasons, one, I want to bring something of quality and of value out to my listeners. Two, I want to train my brain to think better. And by learning how to write better and to take these ideas and put them together, that's how I train my brain to become stronger. My thinking is significantly stronger now than it was five years ago when I started my podcast. My ability to logic through things, my ability to reason, my writing has gotten significantly better. And the quality is is, is far superior than it was five years ago. But it's not just the quality of my writing, though I do think that clean writing and clear writing is clear thinking. If you can't write well, you probably can't think well. And the better you can write, the better you can think. And so I think that they shortcut themselves. Yeah, this this may give you all these ideas and do all of these things for you. And I use uh, ChatGPT for looking up quotes for trying to find stories that that help me support what I'm talking about. And occasionally I'll ask it like, hey, I don't know much about this term. Can you define this for me? Or I will ask it for 20 ideas on something. And just because I'm, I may be stuck and I use it as a, as a way to kind of break some writer's block just to give me some more ideas to seed some things with. But I never use it to write any text. I never use it to any of those things. I never use it to make the connections that I need to be there. Because that for me is part of why I do my podcast is because I want to make those connections. And, you know, and so I try to impart that with the people that I talk to about that. Like, don't shortcut yourself. Don't use these tools to take that lesson away from you. It's like going to the gym and, you know, paying a robot to lift weights for you. You're not going to get muscular. You're not going to get that strength you need. You're not going to get the health benefits from it. Yeah, you might have lit, say, you know, you might be able to record on your app. Hey, I lifted this many weights today, even though you really didn't. But, you know, you kind of get the gist of it that you're really just you're shortcutting yourself and you are missing out on opportunities for growth when you do something like that. I think technology should be a good tool, but it shouldn't do the job for you. It should be that support thing for you because you're really yeah. It's, miss it's out. definitely it's a support. It's very it, and Josh is Josh is saying this in the in the chat down there. It's uh, it's definitely a tool. It can definitely be misused and misunderstood, uh, but super valuable in the kind of the roles that you were saying, um, helping to break writer's block. Uh, helping to uh, quickly research something. Uh, one of the things that I do on the road, uh, and, and we were talking a little bit, somebody mentioned in the comments too, that we're all kind of multidimensional. And when I was talking about the brains thing, um, it, it kind of goes into like this whole thing we're doing, my wife and I and our YouTube channel. And everybody says, you gotta, you gotta have a niche and you gotta focus on a niche. And I sit here and contemplate it and I go, well, my niche is me. It's our life. It's what we're doing. 
and we do a lot of different shit. I mean, like who on their, in their life says, Oh, this is what I do. I do a podcast. That's it. Every day. That's all I do. I do a podcast. Um, you know, I walk my dogs. I got three St. Bernards. I like to go look for rocks. I like to go to cemeteries and take pictures of headstones. Um, what chat GPT, well, actually the, the new Bing feature, uh, direct link to the internet is very useful for is when I'm doing histories of a cemetery and I can say, find me the history of XYZ cemetery in this town. And I don't have to go dig and dig and dig and dig and dig. Now I take that information and it's not copy and paste. It's now I'm writing with the research. It's like my research assistant. Yes. And that's what I use it for as well, because oftentimes like I need an idea to a clear understanding of, of cognitive reframing. And so I said, Hey, what is cognitive reframing? And it gave me a, a basis of some things. And I said, so what are some ways that you can implement this? And I used it as, you know, I asked lots of questions about it. And it was, for me, I used it as I would have searched on the internet. So right. it's just an easier way to search the internet. And that's the way that I treated it was, this is my research assistant that I can ask questions of rather than to figure out what's the best query for the thing that I want to do. It was just, or hey, you what would do you have know asked Socrates when you were standing there asking him about his philosophy and recording it. Yeah. Exactly. You, you and, have to ask. You, you don't know what you don't know. You have to figure it yeah. out somehow. <laughs> yeah. And so for me, what I'm finding is that, you know, I don't care. You know, I don't look at it as as ethical of, oh, you used what they wrote and, and created a book on it. I don't really care about that. To me, it's much that's the part that the unethical part of it for me is that you are missing out on bettering yourself as a human. You're missing out on learning how to think better. You are missing out on all of these great things you could be learning simply because you want to take a shortcut. And that's what I find. That's the part that I don't care for. I think that, you know, and I'm in it, I'm in tech. So for me talking about this, I come from a, from a place of a lot of knowledge about these things. I think that technology should be used to automate those things that, that are incredibly repetitive and that you should automate those type of things. But when it comes to, thinking that's something that you need to do yourself and you can be lazy plenty of people are plenty of people in this world are very lazy they they adopt a, a belief system and they hold on to that for the rest of their lives and that that serves them well but that's just not who i am and i find that i'm going to continue to grow on these things and lately i've been much more interested in books rather than teaching me tactics or you know strategy about how to do x y or z they're much more about metacognition and they're much more about how do I think about thinking? Which is why the, the so I picked up a book by Ward Farnsworth, who is uh, an attorney and he's a dean of school of law down in Texas. And it's called uh, you know, Socratic Method, a Practical Handbook. And it talks about the Socratic Method and it talks about how you can use that. And it's you when you really understand it, the Socratic Method is a way for you to question your own thinking. Yes, you can use it on other people and stuff like that, but it's much more about questioning yourself and why questions are very important. Um, and there's this great quote in there. And let me grab this for you real quick because I think it's just one of the most, it just kind of blew my mind when I read it. And I try to be better about this. And I'm not the best at taking questions because my dad would use questions as a way to kind of beat up on us, you know? Interrogate and, really, and rip up. And <laughs> yeah, he would ask these questions. And if we didn't answer them correctly, then he'd get mad at us until we gave the right answer. So oftentimes when people ask me questions or question me in, in situations where I'm feeling uncomfortable, I can get, I can get a bit reactive and I understand that. And I'm, I'm, I'm working on that, but 
I love the way that he put this. He said, a question puts pressure on whomever receives it. If you ask questions of yourself, you are the recipient of pressure. That's good. Stating an opinion is roughly the opposite. It releases pressure. Pressure is uncomfortable. So most people think and talk in opinions, but the unpressured man mind tends towards laxity and corruption. And I read that and I just went, whoa, okay. My just blew my mind of like, oh, that's why. And then it, it made me understand of why I really, it, when I work on my podcasts, why I can't just sit down and just riff off on something because I need that pressure coming back at me. When I write, I'm asking myself questions. I'm putting pressure on right. myself so that I'm, I'm testing these ideas. I'm going, mm, yeah, okay, that's not a great idea. I mean, I thought it might be a great idea, but as I'm pr putting pressure on that, it's not a good idea. And so I can get rid of that. Or maybe it's got a little nugget of it, but these other parts, you know, I need to strip those away. So writing is a way for me to question my own thinking. And so I'm able to get much better episodes because I sit down and write and think about those things. When I'm in a podcast, war, like an interview podcast like this, I do okay because I'm getting pressure back. I'm getting you questioning things. I'm getting you asking me questions. I'm getting a little bit of pushback from you. So while you're not giving me a lot of pressure, you're giving me some. And so again, there's some kind of pressure coming in on that. And I think that people don't like pressure on that. They don't like being uncomfortable and they run away from that discomfort. And if you can learn to sit with discomfort, if you can learn to turn into discomfort, if you can learn to turn into those hard things and be okay with that, you become a much better person. You become a much better thinker. Um, I mean, you look at that in a lot of martial arts, you know, the, the, the master doesn't, you know, if you want to become a master at something, don't train with somebody at your level, train at somebody who's you know, two or three steps above your level. Somebody who's going to kick your ass more times than you're going to be able to kick theirs. That's how you're going to get better faster. And so this is kind of that same way. The way that I get better faster is really working hard to question my thinking, to learn from people who have bigger ideas than I do and try to question that. So I've been really big into more metacognition and understanding thinking behind things, which is why Socrates was important because Socrates, his tools were the tools that created stoicism and created these tools. So those are the meta ideas that created the strategies and the tools that we get from stoicism. So I've been interested in what created stoicism. Nice. Nice. Yeah. You, it, you're asking more questions, <laughs> but I, I've really worked hard. Um, so like I said, with that hospitality background, I was trained to not let a conversation die. It's got to keep going. Cause it's, it's two minutes. It's next customer back to this. And it, it was just, it's, it's got a roll. It stops when yep. I walk away. Uh -huh. So I've very worked very hard when someone asks me a question to stop that it's okay. Silence is okay. It's okay to take a second and think about an answer. You don't have to break the silence immediately. Uh, I consciously have to think that because I have this fear of silence, I think. I think a lot of people do. I think a lot of people are afraid to stop and sit in silence, which is why meditation for most people is incredibly challenging because sitting there and just paying attention to your thinking, that's hard. Mm -hmm. It's very, very challenging. Um, I made a challenge to myself uh, last, at the end of last summer where I 
meditated for 60 minutes a day for 60 days in a row. That's actually a, a difficult challenge, I would have to say. Did you did you make it through? I missed one day and it was because we were traveling and uh, I, because of that people pleaser, don't want to offend people side of me that that's still there from the church. I didn't mention it to my partner. And then we got where we're going. She was like, you should have asked. We could have, if that's what it meant for you to do that, I absolutely would have supported you on that. That would, so just putting that out there now. And, and I was like, okay, well, I will give myself this one day out. Um, and uh, I got the idea from Naval Ravikant and he talked about how he did that. And he said that doing that was one of the hardest things he ever did in his life. And he does it from time to time, but that it really got rid of a lot of anxiety in his life, that it was one of the, one of the core moments of his life where he felt like he gained a modicum of control over his own mind and his own thinking. And it really reduced a lot of anxiety for him. And I found that it definitely did the same thing for me. And I, I definitely want to get back to it. My biggest problem is, is that because I've had insomnia so bad over the last three months, that's been a very big challenge because if I sit down during the middle of the day and go, okay, I'm going to meditate for an hour, I will fall asleep in the chair, which because my body needs it is fine. Right. But doesn't yeah, really achieve yeah. the goal. It doesn't really achieve the goal. And so I'm, you know, once I kind of get this, this insomnia back under control and I'm able to get some decent sleep, then I'll definitely do that as another practice. And it's, it's, it's hard. It's incredibly challenging, but so that's 60 if you minutes can do for it, 60 days. Yes. Yeah. That's, that's, in, that's pretty intense. I mean, I know people that are pretty hardcore into meditation and they're like, you know, 20 minutes, three to seven days a week and i'm like 60 wow that's that's pretty i can see where it, it can make some significant changes if you can make it through it for sure well one of the things that i talk about in my life you know on my podcast quite often is that sometimes you need to make you need to take bold steps you need to move the needle as fast as you can and as hard as you can and so sometimes taking bold action towards a goal is the best thing you can do because it gets you that momentum. I mean, like with my podcast, 137 days in a row, that's some pretty bold action. Now, were they all great? No, there's plenty of them that were just absolute crap. And I totally admit that, but I put it out there. And so when I did take breaks from my podcast, because I had a large body of work out there, I still had a, a fairly large listenership. And that was what was pretty cool about it was that when I did decide to come back, you know, I had still been racking. I had this big project so I could take some time off and people were still listening to it. People were still writing me saying, hey, I know you're not on the air anymore. I just want to say thank you. And so then coming back to it wasn't that hard. And it does take time to build back up that listenership. You know, my weekly stats definitely dropped quite a bit. Um, for a while, when I was at my peak, probably about two years ago, you know, I had about 100,000 downloads a week. Nice. And now it's getting now it's getting to about 30 or 40,000 downloads a week. And, you know, it, it's, it's picking back up, you know, when I started back up back in, I guess it was June of last year, you know, for a while it was about 10,000 and then it's, it's, it's just keep moving up. Yeah. Sometimes how it feels is that, you know, <laughs> you know, but the thing is, is you're not going to get better unless you get out there and do it. You know, experience right. is a fantastic teacher and there's a lot of things that I've gotten a lot better about. Like if you listen to the way that I speak now, I'm much more confident on 
on here. I mean, I, I generally am pretty confident, but I don't have any, I don't have very many ums or uhs or a lot of the vocal ticks are gone because I've spent, you know, I've got 250 episodes that I've done. And plus, right. you know, numerous interviews on other people's podcasts. So, excuse me, you get better at it by doing it. I've gotten much, much better at writing by doing it. And so, yeah, put out crap. At first, it's going to suck. Well, nobody listens when you're putting out the crap anyway. I mean, they yeah. do, and then they laugh, and then you get better, and then you can all laugh at it together and look back and go, man, I really did suck. <laughs> yeah, and it, it, for me, it was it was wild after doing it for... You know, I had like 43 episodes and I remember um, I had about 10,000 downloads at that point. And I was just like, holy crap, I've got 10,000 downloads, you know, and I've, I've long since blown past that. But for me, it was just like this. Wow, my my voice has been downloaded, you know, over 10,000 times by people. That's that's crazy. And, you know, now I'm up in I think about six or seven million downloads total. And I'm like, wow, that's crazy that my voice has been listened to, you know, almost 7 million times by people on this planet all over the world. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I, I'm at that point where you were at the beginning, uh, at that lower numbers. And I'm, I just sit there and contemplate, okay, I've talked into this microphone and that many people have played it through their ears or at least put it on their device intending to possibly put it in their ears. And I'm like, wow, maybe I should really be careful about what I say. And I'm like, no, that's why I'm doing this is because I, yeah. I say who I am and people should be mature enough to decide if that's what they want to do. And I can't Absolutely. worry about that. Yeah. And so when people give me, t you know, I, I don't have that many bad reviews, but on the occasional ones that I do, it's usually because I've said something that they don't like politically. Um, you know, I just kind of brushed off. I'm like, yeah, you're not going to like my politics, but that's okay. And if, you know, I don't know why you have to complain about my politics, but, you know, OK, whatever. You know, you don't have yeah. to listen to it, you know, just because we you don't like me doesn't mean you have to listen to it. My wife and I were talking today. I posted a video about um, it was a simple just video that I uh, when we were thinking about packing up, I went back and forth whether I should bring this third 25 foot hose for getting water to our camper. I was like, it's a lot of room to store, blah, blah, blah. It's not a lot of weight back and forth, back and forth. So I brought it. And this trip, I needed it. Like, we just couldn't get close enough to the spigot to get close. So I needed this. So I was just, I took it. I was like, you know, if you're ever thinking about going full time on the road and you're questioning whether you want that extra 25 foot hose. And then I showed the hose out. I was like, yeah, it's worth it. And otherwise, I would have had to carry jugs back and forth. And the first comment was, oh, so you can steal people water from people's private well on a different property. And I'm like, huh? I'm like, you know, I'm glad you assumed the worst, but no, I just couldn't, I couldn't park close to the spigot, but thanks for uh, thinking the worst. Stay classy, lady. I'm like, why are these people like, why does everybody always assume the worst? They have to trash on everything you do, but then yeah. you just look at them and you go, yeah, you're, there's something wrong with your life. Like my wife says, yeah. how do these people have this much time and this much energy to, to just go around and trash on all this stuff. Like, yeah. Well, I remember there was a, a great story and I, I had one of my podcast episodes about this was uh, years ago, Sarah Silverman, uh, this guy wrote on, you know, wrote, wrote something on her Twitter account, like, uh, you know, tweeted back at her and it was, it was pretty crude and offensive and it was calling her all sorts of names. And she was just like, huh? So she went and looked at his profile 
and looked at his tweets, kind of did a little, little stalking on him and was like, wow. And then she wrote this, she wrote a tweet and she said, hey, all my followers. So this guy here, you know, he's in a lot of pain. He's a vet and his back is really killing him. And I think he was down in like Austin or something like that. And it's like, is there anybody in Austin who could help this guy? Because he's in a lot of pain. And I would really love to connect to you today. And this one guy's like, I'm a chiropractor. I would love to see this guy. What can I do to help? And she's like, hey, you, he's right here. Can you connect to him? And this guy is just like, wrote to her and it's like, hey, I'm really sorry for doing that. That was really awful. And she's like, don't worry about it. You were in a lot of pain. I'm really sorry you're in a lot of pain. And I'm going to do what I can to help get you get you feeling better. Because, you know, he was complaining about how, you know, when you go to the veterans hospitals, they weren't doing anything for him. Yeah. So she was trying to use her fame to get this guy some help. And, you know, I was just like, that's that's awesome. I was lucky enough to uh, actually connect with a, a, a new follower, actually. And we, we conversed quite a bit that came out of my gravestone stuff on YouTube. I had posted a video and somebody shot a snarky comment about uh, going going to a cemetery and taking a video, putting some sad music on it and and making all this money. And I'm like, well, first of all, I do it because I enjoy graveyards and, and old old headstones and the art behind them and the and the history and and i like to take care of them and i clean them and i think documenting them because they're and i wrote this big long just nice response and the person was like wow i reread my comment and that was really horrible of me to uh to assume that and i appreciate what you do i'm so glad you replied i was in a bad mood and this and that and we had like it was like a 14 comment back and forth about her, he was apologizing to me and I was just like, Hey, I just doing what I'm doing. And by the way, mm -hmm. these shorts, the short that you said I made all that money on, it made like 38 cents. So yeah. I'm not doing it for the money, man. <laughs> yeah. And I had, it was interesting because I had one, uh, I get a lot of likes and I get a lot of people who send me personal messages. Uh, occasionally I get somebody who will comment on things. Um, and I got one comment a while back and this woman was, because the episode was uh, you don't deserve anything, basically. It's like, what do you deserve? And I'm like, right. you, don't, you don't deserve anything in life. You deserve nothing. You get what you get and you work for the rest. And I said, life isn't fair. So don't ever expect it. And we had this interesting back and forth. And she was like, well, I think it should be that you you get what you deserve. And I said, no. I said, that is completely wrong. And she was like, why is that? And I said, because that would say that somebody who gets cancer deserved to get cancer. You, nobody deserves to get cancer. You just get cancer. It just, it's what happens It's part of life. It's not good or bad. It just simply is. And so we had this ongoing back and forth discussion and, you know, it was on medium and, uh, you know, I, I kept it out in the open so she could see that I wasn't trying to lambast or anything. And I try my best to be very diplomatic. But then by the time we got to the end, I explained that, you know, and she was just like, well, I believe that there, you know, the universe provides and all this stuff. And I said, I believe the universe does not. I believe that life happens and we can take the opportunity to turn anything into an opportunity. But we have to actively make that choice for it to be an opportunity. And I said, the reason why is because to assume that the universe gives you what you need is to assume that there is some kind of intelligence going, they need this. And so I'm going to give this to them. And I said, because honestly, if it was exactly what I needed, I wouldn't turn those opportunities down and I would do that thing and that I would be exactly what I truly needed. And so I said, but also it means that I'm making my growth dependent on some unseen entity of giving me a lesson that I can learn from. 
And that's not the way that I see life. I see that life happens and I can take every opportunity, every situation, everything, and turn it into an opportunity to learn. And I said, and also if you, I said, this is part of the problem, I think, with many religious aspects like that is because it's a learned helplessness. It's a helplessness of, well, I'm only going to do something if God sends a lesson my way to do this or whatever the universe, whatever you want to call it. Whereas if you go, I'm going to take everything that happens and see if I can find an opportunity to learn something from it or do my best to see the opportunities and decide whether or not I want to take those, but that you're actively making choices. And this comes back to my whole idea of there are no problems, there are only choices. And, you know, we got to the end of this. And after that discussion back and forth, she was like, wow, I never thought of it that way. And I can see how I definitely have used that in an unconscious way of not, of not growing in certain ways. Wow. Wow. Thank you for helping point that out. I really appreciate it. And I, and I tried to push back diplomatically, but I was asking questions. I was just saying, you know, stating my opinion and saying, if you'd thought of it this way, doesn't that do this? And she'd be like, well, oh, okay. Yeah. You, yeah. You're right. Okay. I didn't, I didn't think of it that way. And I said, totally fine. But, you know, I just wanted to, you know, and, and so it ended up being a great conversation at the end. She's like, thank you so much. This was so helpful. And I'm like, actually, it was really good for me because I had to sit and think about how do I express this in a way to get this idea out to her? Because how I hadn't do I really ever thought about this. Different. Yeah. When, when I so know, me, when that's the thing, when I know I'm right, when I know I'm confident, when I know, I know what I'm talking about and the person just won't concede. And it isn't even need, that I need them to concede. I challenge myself to present it in a different way where they can see it the way I know it needs to be for me. It might not need to be that way for them, but I need them to understand. I want them. I don't need, sometimes I need them to my wife. <laughs> I need her to, but I want them to understand why I see it this way. And then if, if you can admit that that's okay. Okay. I understand that. Then I don't give a shit what you think. I mean, I, I care about you and I am compassionate towards you, but you can think what you think. Cause that's your yeah. life. That's your, your reality. Exactly. And for me, it was just more because she, she asked some good questions in the beginning. I was like, well, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I kind of took the Socrates approach of like, well, if you think of it this way, doesn't it do that? Then she'd be like, well, no, but what about this? I know I mean it like this. And I said, but, you know, and, and it was a great dialogue and I really, I learned a bunch from it as well. So it was really fun, but it was nice because she was open to listening to that. And, yeah. you know, like I said, at the end, she was like, this has been great. Thank you so much. And I'm like, no, thank you. It was great. Well, so. speaking of that, man, we just hit two hours. So I think <laughs> we should probably uh, probably think about shutting it down here so I could take my dogs out and get up and do my show in yeah. like, I think, like 10 hours. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. dude, it, it, this has been great. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Um, I'm thinking we'll probably have to do it again at some point because, I mean, this was just yeah. super easy. Maybe, maybe we'll talk uh, blockchain and stuff like that another time. But, uh, Cause we're pretty heavy into that around these parts. So, but um, man, if you want to, if you want any, to give any final thoughts, uh, I have your link to your podcast and your webpage in the, in the show notes, your Instagram. Um, and I can throw any others that you want in there for sure. Uh, after the fact, but uh, man, if you want the floor for a few minutes, go ahead and uh, leave us with a final thought and uh, we'll wrap this up and, uh, and move on. Oh, let me think. I kind of got <laughs> most of what I wanted out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, it, hey, sign I up, plug something. What do you got coming up or something like anything, really? 
Um, well, one of the things I am working on, and, and again, this is in the midst of all of this crazy stuff I'm trying to do, get my house sold and, you know, get over to Europe and get sleep. And, and I've also been working on my health a lot. So I did have some, just some minor health issues, um, throughout my back yesterday and I'm doing better today, but yeah, just like thing after thing after thing. Um, but I am working on creating like a, a course or a challenge thing. I hopefully will have up in the next month or two. Um, there's some some moving parts to that that I need to kind of pull in together from other people and stuff. And that's again, again, plus just the amount of energy I have going on, but the idea would be to turn this into something that people would be able to use and apply in their daily lives. Cause listening to a podcast is great, but if there are some exercises you can do that again, like for me, writing my podcast is an exercise I do every week to help ground me and to help me think about these ideas, which then, they sit and percolate in my head all week long, which then helps me to be better about my thinking and so on and so on. So trying to come up with a way that helps other people do that, that same kind of thing in a, in a more structured way. Um, so hopefully that should be up and running probably within the next two to three months. Nice. Um, so if people want to sign up, I, I have a sign up for a newsletter. I haven't sent a newsletter out for quite a while, um, mostly because I've just been focusing on the podcast and just, but before what I would do is I would, you know, post the podcast and then, you know, basically write a, you know, two or three paragraph thing, introducing the podcast and, and sending out links to that and so on. But uh, at least get on my email list. And so when I start getting better about, you know, when I start getting closer to that, I can definitely let people know. Um, and yeah, I think that's about it. But okay. I found that, like I said, for me, stoicism has just been a really good framework of dealing with reality as it comes. I'm much less anxious. I'm much more mindful about my moods and behaviors, um, much more self-accepting of myself. That's obviously what self-acceptance is, but I'm much better at self-acceptance, um, which means that I'm generally much more compassionate and kind to other people as well, because it's hard to be when you are more kind and compassionate to yourself, You it's easier to give out to other people as well. Right. So um but yeah just it sounds just like anything of... that uh, society could use that more of all of it so it can't be a bad thing yeah i mean i think the main thing is is that you know you need to learn how to control your own thinking your own thoughts your own actions your emotions you know and the more that you are in charge of yourself the less control anybody else has over you and the more that you can direct your life and make choices with your life you have a lot more power than you think. And our culture isn't set up necessarily in a way like that. Our language isn't necessarily set up in a way like that. Anytime I hear somebody saying, oh, th they made me angry or that that pissed me off, that's externalizing blame. That's saying that that thing is the reason why I'm upset, not the the whole process, which is that thing happened or that person did this thing. I had a thought about that, which then triggered an emotion in my body which made me feel this way. And if they can interrupt that and go, huh, what's my thinking behind this? Because that's the thing they can control. They can't control this other person, but they can control their thinking. And they can think, hey, what did, what's going on in my head? What's the story am I telling to myself? They can take a lot more control over their life. It takes time. For sure, for sure, man. All right, man. I appreciate it for sure. For sure. I'm, I'm excited to, uh, hear about this trip to Europe and, uh, and getting your, uh, getting the 
the daily thing. I mean, it, it almost sounds like you're going back to what started you off with the journal, um, the daily stoic journal. Uh, and it makes perfect sense because uh, you're seeing what helped you along the way and emulating it. And it's, it's, a, it's an awesome model. And I appreciate it. So I want to thank you for being here. I encourage everybody to check out your podcast. Uh, go back and listen to those first hundred and what was it, 137 days in a row. Um, and, and, and compare and contrast. And I'm sure there were nuggets along the way, the whole way, even I look back and even when I was horrible, there was stuff worth listening to. So yeah. I encourage people to go back and listen to people's body of work and, and watch them progress, but definitely check your stuff out. And I will, it's in my podcast feed now. Um, and a couple of, of guys here in the audience have said that, uh, they're listeners too. So I appreciate you coming on. Um, I wish you all the best. I hope your back feels better and, and every, and the insomnia kind of fades, but, uh, I'm going to drop you off here. I'm going to wrap up. And if you hang out for a few minutes, I will, uh, I will catch up with you in just a second. Sounds good. All right, man. Thanks for being here. Will do. All right. I want to thank Eric for coming on that two hours, just kind of, uh, yeah, flew by. Holy crap. Uh, what a great conversation. I appreciated it. Uh, be sure to check out his podcast, his Instagram. His links are in the video description. Uh, I'm going to talk to him about Fountain and maybe pulling him on Telegram. We'll see. We'll see. I saw you over in there in the comments asking. But uh, check out the Stoic Coffee Break. It's a fantastic podcast. This has been another episode of Lots to Talk About. Thanks for listening, and we will talk to you next time. <laughs>